quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Tuesday, September 12th. Breaking overnight, police say the escaped murderer in Pennsylvania was spotted again late last night and is now armed. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un has crossed into Russia to meet with Vladimir Putin about a potential high-stakes arms deal. Also new this morning, Putin weighing in on Donald Trump's indictment, saying the prosecutions are political and good for Russia. And in that federal election subversion case, Trump has formally asked the judge to recuse herself, arguing her past public statements show bias. She's now asking Jack Smith's team to weigh in. And Monday Night Football overnight, quarterback Aaron Rodgers carted off the field with an injury just minutes into his debut with the New York Jets. They still, though, got the OT win against the Bills. CNN This Morning starts right now. All right, this breaking overnight, police say the murderer who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison nearly two weeks ago now is armed and still on the move. Officers swarmed an intersection about 25 miles from the prison late last night after a confirmed sighting and sent out this social media post just before 2 a.m. He is armed. Residents in the area are asked to lock all doors and windows, secure vehicles, remain indoors. Do not approach. Call 911 if seen. CNN affiliate WPVI reports that a pair of shoes believed to be Daniello Calavacantes were found in the area. And shortly after that, police received reports of gunfire. CNN correspondent Danny Freeman is tracking the latest. Uh, Danny, another overnight of major developments. What's the latest? Well, Phil Popley, frankly, this was the update that so many feared for so many days. Danilo Cavalcante now armed but still on the loose. And I got to tell you, we're along Pottstown Pike right now at a staging area that police have set up. A lot of activity this morning. We just saw a uh, armored vehicle with a lot of law enforcement officers in camouflage racing into this area. Uh, this is just indicative of what we've been seeing all throughout the night. But I really want to explain to you how we got to this moment because it is important. And I want to tell you what we do uh, definitively know at this time. Remember, yesterday was actually a pretty quiet day in the search. Law enforcement officials, they were focusing on this area about 20 miles north of the prison called East Nampmeal Township. Uh, it's a pretty small little community still in Chester County, but importantly, it is the community where Cavalcante ditched that stolen dairy van over the weekend. So that was why police was focusing on that area. But it was pretty low key for most of the day until last night. And we saw a flurry of increased police activity. We saw police vehicles flying down this road at Pottstown Pike. Helicopters were in the air, and then a few things happened. First, Chester County alerted that there had been a shooting in East Nant Mill at around 10.10 p.m. in the area of Country, uh, Coventryville Road excuse me, and Ridge Road. Then police confirmed to CNN at 10.24 last night there was a confirmed sighting of Cavalcante. Then that reverse 911 call went out to the South Coventry Township community, just about three and a half miles up this road right here, to lock doors and to lock your windows because Cavalcante may be in the area and he is possibly armed. Then at around 1.45 this morning, Pennsylvania State Police confirming Cavalcante 
is armed at this point, urging residents in this area to take precaution. Uh, now, there is a new perimeter, as we understand. Like I said, it's about three miles north of this staging area where all of the media is set up right here. Uh, the search area, also importantly, is just four and a half miles or so north of where that dairy van was ditched. So Cavalcante, still in Chester County, according to police, still in this general area. Uh, and we're working to confirm a little bit more details about what exactly happened last night when it comes to the shooting, what kind of weapon Cavalcante has. But again, day 13 of this manhunt, a lot of developments overnight. Poppy, Phil. You say he's still in that area, they believe. So what are they doing to protect the public? We remember right after he escaped, they closed a bunch of schools for a few days. Yeah, Poppy, at this point, we're still waiting on some updates uh, for uh, from some of the schools in the area. We reported that there's one school district in this immediate area that has added extra security. We're expecting that to be the case again today. Uh, there's an elementary school actually pretty close to uh, where the new perimeter is right now. Again, we're waiting for updates. It's still in the early hours. But uh, listen, it's it's nerve wracking. We were in that small community uh, of East Nantmeal yesterday and in, uh, into the early evening and people are on edge because there was so much uh, police presence. They were searching for someone, and it turns out, according to police, that Cavalcante wasn't too far. Dan. Very anxious moment. Danny Freeman, we appreciate it. Keep us updated, please. Poppy? All right, right now, Kim Jong-un is on the move inside of Russia, but it's a big mystery where the North Korean dictator's armored train is heading and where he will eventually meet with Vladimir Putin. Overnight, his train was spotted crossing the Russian border. There are new indications this morning that Kim and Putin could potentially meet at uh, a Kostradome where Russia launches space rockets. It's hundreds of miles north of a city you've been hearing a lot about in recent days, that is Vladivostok. That's where they were expected to meet. U.S. officials have been sounding the alarm about this meeting. They say Kim Jong-un wants to discuss an arms deal with Russia to supply weapons for the war on Ukraine in exchange for satellite and nuclear submarine technology. Our international correspondent, Paula Hancox, is tracking all of it for us. Paula, good morning to you. What's the latest? Well, Poppy, good morning. We do know that Kim Jong-un is in Russia and we know that he is heading north at this point. The defense ministry here in Seoul said they believed he crossed the border in the early hours of Tuesday local time. It's just after 7 p.m. now, so potentially about 12 hours ago. But we know that his armored train does not move quickly. So he's heading north. Uh, and we understand from TASS, state-run media, they actually asked the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, where are they going to meet? And he said to that, at this point, we're not saying in the Far East, also saying that it would be in the next few days. So still, the location and the timing is not being clarified by either side at this point. But what we do know is that there will be a military feel to this meeting. We've just heard from state media that the defense minister, Sergei Shrigu, will be part of the discussions with Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. Poppy? In interesting, since he's the one who went and sort of kicked this all off months ago. This is all happening in the shadow of China. Right. You've covered the region for so long, Paula. Can you just talk about what this means for China and how China views this? Yeah, Poppy, this is a key aspect of it. What does China think? Now, we know that today Vladimir Putin actually met with the Chinese vice premier. He's in Vladivostok. He's there for this Eastern uh, Euro uh, Economic Forum. Uh, and he spoke of the, uh, the, the relationship with China, uh, saying that uh, relations between the two countries reach unprecedented historical levels. So we know that China and Russia are close. We know that North Korea and China are close. China's mm -hmm. effectively been propping up North 
North Korea for decades. And one other thing we know from South Korean intelligence is that they believe when Shrigu, the defense minister, was in Pyongyang back in July, pitching all these ideas uh, to Kim Jong-un, he actually pitched the idea of joint military drills between China, Russia and North Korea. So that would certainly be one to watch. I mean, we, we know the West, the United States in particular, has warned against any arms deal, but there are all these sanctions already on North Korea. I mean, what is the West's response expected to actually be when this happens? Also a key question. It is something that the West has been struggling with when it comes to North Korea for, for years. There are so many sanctions against North Korea, the one, one of the heaviest uh, sanctioned countries on Earth, and yet they still manage to have this fairly impressive nuclear and missile program that's continuing despite all this. So quite frankly, if Russia and North Korea decide to do an arms deal, yes, they could uh, bring more sanctions in, but both Russia and North Korea are already heavily sanctioned. Mm -hmm. So there is a concern that there's fairly difficult uh, task ahead. It's, there's very little they can actually do right. to stop this if the two countries want to do it. And it means that North Korea will actually get some technology that the West mm -hmm. does not want it to have. Poppy. Right. And these two leaders are going into this meeting knowing that the warnings don't come with a lot of teeth, a lot of ability to enforce them. Paul Hancock, great reporting. Thanks very much. Phil. You know, Poppy, there's a reason I was somber when I walked into the studio this morning. Um, <clears throat> while the New York Jets took home a huge overtime win against the Buffalo Bills, it was overshadowed, and this was something that had a deep impact on many on our team here on set by this moment. Protection breaks down, and time runs out. Down goes Rodgers in the sack for Leonard Floyd. A lot of Jets fans on our team. That was star quarterback Aaron Rodgers, his first regular season game, the savior for the much maligned Jets. He was injured in the first quarter. Coy Wire joins us now. Uh, Coy, you were at last night's game. Uh, look, there's that running joke about the script writers in the NFL and that everything is scripted. Like, this is the worst Nobody script ever. Why did this happen? No one can write this. And if you did, why did you do it <laughs> at the stadium? The passion was palpable. Number eight jerseys everywhere. This was the big debut in the Big Apple. Uh, like Broadway Joe 55 years ago when the Jets won their first and only Super Bowl title. But then the Jets' biggest star in decades went down and this shocked the sporting world. A New York moment for Aaron Rodgers' debut with the Jets, running onto the field with the American flag to honor those lost on 9-11. After 18 years in Green Bay with a Super Bowl ring and four league MVPs to his name, Aaron Rodgers is repping the New York Jets. But in his fourth play of the game, the unthinkable. Holy cow, I cannot believe this. Rodgers ruled out with what the Jets called an ankle injury. Please, Lord Jesus, don't let this be the season. <laughs> it's unbelievable. X-rays were taken. The team says they're negative, but Coach Robert Sala said... Concerned with his Achilles. MRI is probably going to confirm what we think is already going to happen. So prayers tonight, but it's not good. A season hyped up by HBO's Hard Knocks, giving Rodgers the star treatment. Shout out Aaron Rodgers for coming to help us out. <laughs> But just when it seemed that all hope was lost, an unlikely hero emerged in overtime. This game is over! In my mind, I'm 
Ron, I'm thinking like, let's win this game for A-Rod. Unbelievable win for the Jets, but a huge loss for the Jets, especially the fans who were really looking forward to this. And this is a, a, a sad but possible reality that we may have seen Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest NFL players of all time, play his last game. He's 39 years his old last already. Game? If this could be an, a ruptured Achilles, what even the coach you said mentioned that they fear, uh, that's one of the most difficult injuries <gasps> to come back from. He's 39 years old, the oldest active player in the NFL. Uh, so this could be a devastating blow. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is just an absolute legend of the game. He helped change the game and make it what it is today from the quarterback position. This is literally the most Jets thing that could ever happen to the Jets. Uh, and again, my condolences to everybody on the team. That is a huge Jets oh, fan. Kobe, Kobe came back and played one more season after his Achilles. Yeah, so we'll see. Kevin we'll Durant did as Kevin well. Kevin Durant as younger. well. All right, Chan. Coy Wire, my friend. Thanks, buddy. You got it. I was going to say all the green behind the camera. I know. Everyone was wearing team. Jets jerseys yesterday. <laughs> that no one can see. Uh, Donald Trump is asking the judge in his federal election subversion case to step aside. We're going to tell you why. And we're live from the disaster zone in Morocco, where rescue teams have been desperately trying to reach isolated villages devastated by Friday's earthquake. Stay with us. We now want to explore some new developments this morning in two of the criminal cases facing former President Trump. In the federal election interference case, Trump is requesting that Judge Tanya Chutkin recuse herself. He argues that some of her past comments give the perception of bias against him and that the public will never accept the outcome as justice if she does not appear entirely impartial. Meanwhile, in the Georgia election interference case, Trump is making his first attempt at getting the charges dismissed entirely, in a motion that adopts ones made by his fellow co-defendants facing RICO charges. Trump's lawyers echo that the indictment has defects and that the state failed to meet the racketeering statute. I want to turn straight to CNN's Caitlin Polance, who joins us now. And Caitlin, I want to start uh, with the effort to get Judge Chutkin to recuse herself. How much weight does this carry? Well, Phil, this is a motion from Donald Trump's team. They want Judge Chutkin to look at whether Judge Chutkin believes Judge Chutkin can hear this case. So she's going to have to be determining it for herself, something that she already likely already was thinking about as a judge, as most judges do when they look at this. And so as a legal filing, it does have to be looked at by the judge. And she does appear to want to come to some sort of decision on this pretty quickly. She's asking for the Justice Department to weigh in uh, in the coming days and then Trump to say what he wants to say again. And then we would expect to get a, a decision on this pretty quickly. But as a legal filing, these things rarely succeed. There are standards here about when a judge can recuse themselves. Uh, and so it's not something that happens very typically in a case. In this sort of circumstance, it is possibly a legal filing Trump's team wants to make because they believe they need to do this now so that they can set up themselves up for appeals further down the road. But they also may be wanting to make this as a public statement, saying that, you know, Judge Chutkin could be hurting this trial or the public's confidence in this trial by her statements. And they're flagging in this filing. One of the things she said at a sentencing of a January 6th rioter, an Ohio teacher who was quite remorseful and who had argued, the teacher had argued uh, that she was wrapped up in emotions that were brought on by Trump. And when Judge Chutkin sentenced this woman, she said, the people who mobbed that Capitol were there in fealty, in loyalty to one man, not to the Constitution. It's a blind loyalty to one person who, by the way, remains free to that day. The Trump team is clearly unhappy that she had said that on the record. They're trying to use this to get her off the case. 
Caitlin, before we get to, to Georgia, can I put a finer point on this? Based on your years of experience of covering cases like this, do you believe that this will actually happen, a recusal? I... I do not, but I can't predict the courts. Courts do what courts do. Uh, I haven't seen it happen before when a criminal defendant asks for something like this in this district court, in this court that has handled these motions from other people around Donald Trump's right. team uh, in the past. And I actually was doing some reading last night. It's it's actually very rare. Uh, there's lots of law-reviewed articles out there that say that it, it doesn't really happen that often. Not trying to put you on the spot. I just appreciate your experience and I think the depth of your knowledge on this I do want to ask you about the Georgia case, though. I believe the court has a deadline today to kind of walk through how it would actually try all 19 defendants. What do we know about their plans there? Yeah, so that's going to be from the district attorney's office in Georgia. They're going to have to explain, do they actually want to bring all 19 of these people into a trial at the same time in October? Are they ready to do that? How is that going to work? That's something that's going to have to get worked out. There's a lot of questions around how a trial will actually look there. Right now, we have a trial date for two of the 19 defendants, two lawyers, Ken Chesbro, Sidney Powell. And there's also questions about, will other parts of the case be moved out? Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Trump is also trying to get these charges tossed everybody's going to be road testing the legality of the case against them in Georgia. And so there's just a lot of moving parts there that we're going to be watching in the days ahead. Phil? That may be the understatement of the year. Caitlin Polance, we appreciate you as always. Poppy? We always love it when Caitlin Polance pours through law review articles and makes us smarter every morning. All right, more than 2,000 people have died. This is an update on what is happening. And six people still unaccounted for after devastating floods have rushed through Libya. What officials are saying this morning. Also this. This is the moment we've been waiting and hoping for. Mark Dickey is finally emerging from the earth after the past 10 days. That's the American who spent more than a week trapped in one of Turkey's deepest caves. He is finally free. How they got him out. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Just utter devastation. Officials in Libya say more than 2,000 people have died and more than 10,000 this morning are missing after catastrophic flooding 
swept through the northeast region of the country. That flooding apparently caused by the collapse of two dams after two-thirds of Libya's annual rainfall fell in a single day. Entire villages have been swept away. Phone lines are still down, making rescue efforts even more difficult. The country's health minister called the eastern city of Derna a ghost town and says that bodies are still lying in many places. He is calling on the international community for help in providing more search and rescue teams. Forecasters say even more rain is expected there. Well, rescue teams are ramping up their search for survivors this morning in Morocco after Friday's powerful earthquake has left at least 2,800 people dead. The country's military is just now reaching the epicenter of that deadly quake in the mountainous region of the Atlas Mountains, where soldiers are working to remove debris from roads or blocking access to those remote villages. CNN's Nada Bashir joins us live from Moulay Brahim, about 30 miles east of the epicenter. Uh, Nada, your reporting on this has been extraordinary and devastating. How are rescue efforts progressing to this point? Well, look, Phil Poppy, these rescue efforts are progressing slowly. As you mentioned there, it has been a real struggle for the search and rescue teams, particularly the international search and rescue teams, who are only really just arriving, to reach some of the areas hardest hit by the earthquake. And that is because some of these villages are simply too remote. Now, if you just take a look here, I mean, the wide expanse is just huge. You can see here the mountainous range. This is one of the regions that has been easier to get to, uh, to be honest with you. And in fact, yesterday, we were actually at another village called Imi and Tella. And when we spoke to people at that village, they told us that they had spent the first few days digging with their bare hands, that the rescue teams had only just arrived yesterday. And of course, hope is dwindling fast. When we've spoken to survivors waiting for news of their loved ones, they've told us that they have lost all hope that they have survived this earthquake. Take a listen uh, to what other eyewitnesses and survivors have had to say. The government didn't come. We didn't see anyone. After the earthquake, they came to count the number of victims. Since then, not a single one of them is left. No civil protection, no assistance force. No one is here with us. We feel completely abandoned here. No one has come to help us. Our houses have collapsed and we have nowhere to go. Where are all these poor people going to live? Now, of course, these regions are extremely remote and we've been speaking to aid workers on the ground as well as rescue teams, international rescue teams who are just arriving. They are still trying to push ahead with that search and rescue effort. But the focus is, it has to be said, shifting to more of a relief effort now, providing that support to those who have survived. I think not a one thing that has confounded uh, many around the world is why Morocco, it seems, has been pretty slow to accept aid from the West, not just from the United States, from the United Nations, from France, from Italy, from Germany. Why is that? Well, certainly in the first few hours and certainly in the first day or two, we heard from the Moroccan government saying that they would be leading that search and rescue effort, that relief effort, independently. The UN's own coordinators on the ground here in Morocco telling us that they had not been requested uh, to assist in that search and rescue operation, despite standing by and being ready to do so. But what we have seen uh, now is that request for international aid. We've seen support coming in from the likes of Spain, the United Kingdom, Kingdom, uh, Britain, Qatar, uh, some of Morocco's, as we said, allies in that sense. That might be a key factor, a key consideration there. And there has to be a clear sense of frustration amongst those who have survived. They've told us that they haven't seen those rescuers on the ground and are questioning why it has taken so long to get that support.
All right, Nada Bashir live for us in Morocco. Thank you. Also this morning, we want to give you this happy update. He is finally out. American explorer Mark Dickey, who was trapped for more than a week, about 3,000 feet inside of a Turkish cave, well, he has been rescued. It is amazing to be above ground again. I was underground for far longer than ever expected with an, with an unexpected medical issue. Um, I want to immediately thank um, Afad, Rajib, Shalib, the, the support of the Turkish government saved my life. Literally, no questions asked. Dickie fell ill while on this exploration. In the cave, he was suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding and couldn't get out by himself. There was just a huge international effort to save his life. We are glad to see he looks like he's doing pretty well. Love the good news. Well, Vladimir Putin weighing in on the current criminal prosecution, Donald Trump. Why he says they're good for Russia. That's next. Also, Hurricane Lee growing in size in the Atlantic. The storm is currently at Category 3. The National Hurricane Center calls it a major hurricane. It is expecting a weekend later this week and turn northward. Still unclear exactly how Lee could impact the northeast coast. We'll be right back. Right now, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un is on a heavily fortified train, making a slow but very deliberate voyage through Russia to meet with Vladimir Putin. The Pentagon says it's concerned North Korea is considering providing arms to Russia to use in the war on Ukraine. A White House National Security Council spokesperson says we urge the DPRK to abide by the public commitments that Pyongyang has made to not sell or provide arms to Russia. Let's talk about what this really means, what's going to happen. Bloomberg editor and foreign affairs columnist Bobby Ghosh joins us at the table, as well as the former director of communications for the U.S. mission to the United Nations, Jonathan Wachtel. Appreciate you guys being here. Um, Jonathan, you pointed out sort of the worst case scenario. Um, What is that, and do you think it's likely? The worst case scenario is that this becomes a full-fledged military cooperation arrangement between North Korea and Russia. Uh, North Korea has tried very hard over the decades to perfect its missiles, uh, to perfect its nuclear arsenal, to be able to deliver uh, nuclear weapons, payloads, uh, wherever it wants. It's working on a submarine program uh, as well. And Russia has the technology to advance things, to move things up a a huge notch. Uh, And in the past, Russia has looked at uh, North Korea's development of nuclear weapons with a lot of skepticism uh, and concern and even participated in sanctions, though it broke its own sanctions, uh, UN sanctions uh, condemning uh, North Korea for its aspirations in this area. That could change. Uh, Vladimir Putin very much needs weapons uh, to be uh, turning things uh, in Ukraine. Uh, And uh, North Korea knows how to manufacture them. And North Korea has not been in a conflict since the 1950s and has plenty of weapons to give. Bobby, to that point, in talking to U.S. officials the last couple of days, that's the the technology transfer and the longer term effect of this seems to be the the most acute concern. Obviously, they don't want the war in Ukraine to last forever, but that is a significant concern. Russia is historically very closed off when it comes to their technology and willingness to share. Yeah. In terms of leverage right now, with everything that Jonathan's laying out, are they going to have to, to get what they need? Well, they're going to have to give something. North Koreans will want, that will be number one on Kim's uh, wish list when he meets Putin. Um, he needs food as well for his people. He needs money. It's, it's, a, it's an economy that's, that continues to struggle. In the 10 years that he's been in power, the North Korean economy has actually shrunk, which is quite remarkable. Uh, so he needs a great deal from Russia. Uh, but given his background, given the nature of the regime he runs, um, missile technology, perhaps even nuclear technology, it will be the top of 
what he wants from them. And, and to your point, he has leverage now. Uh, Putin is desperate enough. Just the fact that he's, he's asking for ammunition and, and some rockets possibly from the North Koreans suggests a level of desperation uh, that Putin is under. And, and he might be, you know, it's softened him up a little bit for, uh, for Kim Jong-un. How much he'll be able to hold the line and say, all right, I'll give you uh, some food and some money, but I will not give you military technology. Uh, we'll have to see. But he's not in a very strong position. It's also just interesting in this weakened position that you mentioned Putin's in. I mean, listen to what he just said about the prosecutions here in the United States against former President Trump and what he thinks they mean for, um, for Russia. Here it is. All that is happening with Trump is the persecution of a political rival for political reasons. And this is done in front of the public of the United States and the whole world. Why did he say that now? Putin himself feels vulnerable, obviously. Um, he's got a lot of domestic problems that could suddenly erupt, but he's able to contain it through strong, strongman tactics and, and crushing dissent. Uh, and it is always expedient for a leader in that position to point at, at a country that is a liberal democracy, the United States, and, and try to diminish uh, our, our, our government, our, our system, our way of life, uh, the way we choose leaders. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense for, for Putin to do this. Uh, he looks stronger by doing this as well, makes the United States look like a basket case uh, internationally when he does it for domestic consumption. So there are a lot of reasons. I think it's, Bobby, to that point, you know, there's historic precedent uh, going deep into the Soviet era where you point to the United States and say, actually, they're doing the things that they claim that we're doing. The difference now is the principle that is on the United States side, who often agrees with President Putin in moments like this. And I feel like that's an inevitability on his social media at some point in the next five to six hours. <laughs> yes, yes, that will happen. There, there, it's quite remarkable. I would not have thought this possible 15 years ago, that there is a, a pro-Putin camp in this country that will take what he said and say, see, if Putin says this, uh, then he must be right. But, but let's not kid ourselves here. This is a man who's playing head games, uh, both directed at international audiences, John Ponsard, but also at his own domestic audience. He's also trying to tell Russians, remember, this is on Russian television. He's telling Russians, uh, would you like to see this happen in your country, your president being dragged through the courts like this? Surely the system we have uh, has more dignity, has more... It, it, it talks to a fundamental lack of understanding of what liberal democracies are. The, the fact that liberal democracies are strengthened when we apply the rule of law to the highest, the, the holders of the highest offices of our land, the fact that makes us stronger rather than weaker is something that someone like Putin can't get his head around. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Bobby, Jonathan, thank you guys. Appreciate Pleasure. it. All right, this morning, talks continuing between the United Auto Workers, the big union for the big three, and the automakers. We'll talk, take you live to Michigan with how workers there are bracing for a potential strike. The companies want to say that, you know, if we strike, it can wreck the economy. It's not that we're going to wreck the economy. We're going to, we're going to wreck their economy. Well, this morning, time is running out as the United Auto Workers Union and the big three U.S. automakers, Ford, GM, and Chrysler's parent company, work to negotiate a contract. Almost 150,000 workers could strike Friday if there's no deal, which could result a multi-billion dollar hit to the economy. I want to bring in CNN's Omar Jimenez. He's live in Detroit now with more. Uh, 
Omar, these negotiations right now, there were no shortage of sticking points a week ago. Have any of them been resolved yet? Uh, in short, not so much. They still are very far apart. Uh, they've been fighting over negotiating over higher wages, cost of living adjustments, pensions, things that the auto workers say will make their lives fair given the amount of work they're expected to put in, while the automakers are hoping to get a deal before a strike, avoiding what happened back in 2019 when the union went on strike for six weeks. But some union members say they only made incremental progress that time around. They don't want incremental progress here. This fight feels different. It's different. Why is that? Because it's more at stake. We don't want to strike, but you're leaving us no choice if you don't give us a fair contract. We are the union. It's what's on the minds of nearly 150,000 United Auto Workers who are days away from a potential strike. What do we want? When do we want it? Now! As they work through negotiations, they say the world got more expensive, but their wages got left behind. People used to aspire to be part of the, you know, automotive workforce. I can't remember the last time I went to the grocery store and was able to fill my cupboard and my refrigerator. Renee Dixon says even with 12-hour shifts, she sometimes has to work a second job just to keep up. And I, I don't think I should have to do that. If the pay rate and, you know, everything stays the same, there's no path. I'm, I'm not, it's just gonna, I'm just gonna fall further and further back. It's why the union is pushing in part for at least a 40% raise over four years, cost of living adjustments, a return of traditional pension plans and retiree health care, and more. But the union and big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, are very far apart on it all. It's still slow. But we're moving, uh, so, um, you know, we have a long way to go. Meanwhile, the countdown has gone from weeks to days. One analysis says a 10-day strike on all three automakers, for example, would cost the U.S. economy more than $5 billion. But union leadership sees this fight as bigger than all of that, especially as GM saw record profit last year and Ford saw near record profit. The talking heads, the pundits, the companies want to say that, you know, if we strike, it can wreck the economy. It's not that we're going to wreck the economy. We're going to we're going to wreck their economy, the economy that only works for the billionaire class. It doesn't work for the working class. I was able to raise a family in the auto industry, and it was a different industry than it is today. Randy Sandusky retired in 2005 after working in the auto industry for decades. Part of what's been lost in recent years is retiree health care for those hired since 07. Their benefits, he knows, can be crucial. I know some that are crippled, they can't hardly walk and stuff. I used to build handicap ramps for them to get in and out of their houses. And they're all retired from General Motors and then they don't get a lot. You know, it's just a sad. It's part of why workers now hope to make more than just incremental progress. I'm raising my family. I'm doing it. I'm not I'm not crying, but I'm not able to do what I should be able to do. Whatever's going to happen. I know that our membership is not gonna, it's not gonna back down. It's time for the average worker to be appreciated. Because if you're more happy, you're willing to do anything to make the job work. And when you feel appreciated, that's priceless. Now, one of the things the workers in the union have stressed is that between 07 and 09, as GM and Chrysler 
were heading toward bankruptcy and a federal bailout. They made concessions to keep their jobs and help keep these companies afloat, giving up pensions and retiree health care benefits for new hires, for example. They still haven't gotten back some of the things they gave up at the time. And as one union member told me, we scratched their backs. It's time for them to scratch ours. Phil. All right. Omar Force live in Detroit. Thank you. Yeah, they literally have hours, like yeah. 48 of them to get this thing done. Joining us now, the new anchor of Early Start, Casey Hunt. Casey, good morning. Welcome to the mornings. You're used to <laughs> early morning, mornings. Guys, it's great to be here with you. Of course, big booking on your first day for a show. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who's so interesting about all of this because she worked for a long time at General Motors. Here's what she had to say about the chances of a strike. Look, I'm going to be very honest. I uh, think it's 50-50. I think there's a very good chance you could be seeing strikes in Michigan at the end of the week. Tell us more about your conversation with her. Yeah, so, Poppy, I think the thing I was thinking, why should we be listening to what Debbie Dingell has to say about this? Why does that 50-50 matter so much? And it's because she actually has been in the rooms talking to representatives from the unions, talking to uh, representatives from the uh, the automakers, talking to representatives from environmental groups who actually also matter, especially in the context of Democratic Party politics. And she has been uh, warning the White House about this being a very real possibility in a state that voted once for Donald Trump and once uh, for President Biden in 2020 and underscoring the, the massive impact that this uh, could have. Because, uh, you know, I, I'd actually be interested to know what Phil is hearing uh, out of the White House about their thinking on all of this. But it's been a little bit quiet. Uh, and I think I know from talking uh, to Debbie Dingell, both on and off camera, uh, that there's a very real risk here that this is going to happen. And that's going to be a major political crisis for the White House. Yeah, you make a good point. They're quiet with intent, right? And in case you know this very well from watching how this White House has operated, particularly in these labor negotiation moments where they do most behind the scenes, they try and be around to the extent they can help facilitate and not really put a thumb on the scale in the hopes that they can get there in the end. You make a good point though, this isn't just the policy, this isn't just labor, this is politics here, including the possibility that like 2016, perhaps Trump could break the blue wall again. I want you to go back to what Debbie Dingell told you, listen. Democrats did a terrible job of talking about trade and understanding. Donald Trump is again playing to their insecurities and their anxieties. And we're going to have to be very clear that as we make this transition to new technology, that there is a role for the workers. They're going to be paid a decent wage that lets them support their families. Everybody says Michigan's a blue state. Michigan is not. It is purple. It is a very competitive state, and Donald Trump would do well in Michigan right now. Casey, that was striking to me. That was a, that was a warning siren to some degree, right? And it was a warning siren that I think Debbie Dingell was trying to put up there in 2016 as well. But in the course of since 2018, people thought, OK, Michigan has moved firmly back into the blue category. She says no. She does. And, and look, I have, I have conversations with her, and, and as I know you do too, many other uh, sources on the ground here. And, and I, I, I know, and she has told me, that she's trying to tell the Biden campaign specifically, hey, you potentially have a problem here. And I think she was very clear in saying, I mean, she said Michigan is a purple state. I mean, that is a, a pretty clear uh, warning here. So, uh, you know, I do think that in, inside the Democratic Party, a, a strike like this is such a problem, especially because, you know, they have environmental priorities, especially on the left of the party. But they also historically have 
been the party of unions, that really has started to kind of crumble uh, under Donald Trump. Uh, so I think there is a lot here. I mean, we're obviously talking about this strike as, as those workers that Omar spoke to. That's an incredibly important part of this. Uh, but I think that this is something that's going to resonate throughout uh, the coming year. Phil. Yeah, for sure. What a critical week for all of it. Uh, really important conversation. Casey, welcome. Thanks again. Be sure to watch Early Start 5 a.m. Eastern every weekday and then stick around and hang out with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be well. with you. All right, well, ahead, the steps the Biden administration is now taking to secure the release of Americans who are being held in Iran. Plus, we have far too many ER gunshot visits and we have far too many crimes involving firearms. We are suspending open and concealed carry. Suspending guns in public, how people in Albuquerque are reacting after the governor did that. She'll join us ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This morning, five Americans deemed wrongfully detained in Iran are now one step closer to coming home. This comes as the Biden administration has issued a waiver, and that allows international banks to transfer a total of $6 billion in frozen Iranian funds from South Korea to Qatar without sanctions. The United States also agreed to release five detained Iranian citizens. This is all part of the broader deal. Natasha Bertrand has been following this very closely. Um, this was expected, right? It's getting a lot of criticism from Republicans on the Hill, but this was a necessary step to try to bring them home. I think the question this morning is when will they come home? Yeah, Poppy. Well, the White House told us in a statement last night that no Americans will be released into U.S. custody this week, and it's unclear when they will be. But this waiver is a key step in the process. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, he approved that waiver late last week, and that allows banks in Germany, Ireland, Qatar, South Korea, and Switzerland to transfer that $6 billion in restricted Iranian funds to accounts in Qatar without fear of sanctions, and that is key. This waiver is a sign that a deal with Iran to free those five Americans who have been deemed wrongfully detained by the State Department is moving forward. And in a notice to Congress detailing that waiver, Blinken also confirmed that as part of the deal, the U.S. has committed to release five Iranian nationals currently detained in the U.S., meaning that there is a prisoner swap aspect to this agreement. Now, as you mentioned, the prospective deal has already spurred some criticism from Republicans in Congress who say that they are opposed to releasing any money to Iran in exchange for these detainees. But the administration, they've really stressed that the funds that Iran will receive can only be used for humanitarian goods, and they will be dispersed by Qatar and overseen by the Treasury Department. The officials have also emphasized that the money is Iran's money, which has been stored in South Korea for several years and not U.S. taxpayer money. Now, in a statement to CNN on Monday night, National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson described the waiver as a, quote, procedural step in an ongoing process to ensure Iranian funds can move from one restricted to account to another and remain restricted to humanitarian aid. Poppy. Natasha Bertrand, thanks very, very much for that reporting. We'll keep a close eye on it. CNN This Morning continues now. 
Putin's cavalry is coming, led by Kim Jong-un, a meeting that Putin hopes will result in an arms deal. The reason we're watching this so closely is how desperately each needs things from the other. A very big challenge, a dire threat to the West. The Pennsylvania State Police are confirming another sighting of the escaped murderer, Danilo Calvacante. The Pennsylvania State Police issued a series of reverse 911 calls that Calvacante possibly has a weapon. Now we're going to prepare for the long game. Donald Trump is pushing to remove federal judge Tanya Chutkin from presiding over his election subversion case in Washington. Trump's lawyers argue that certain comments that she made mean that she needs to step aside. You have neither the facts nor the law. You pound the table and yell like hell. Morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. We are so glad you are with us. There's a lot to get to. It has been, what, 13 days of this manhunt? And still not finding him, still seeing him every once in a while, and now it's gotten a lot more dangerous. Because they think he's armed right now. A very dangerous situation continues to unfold in Pennsylvania. Police say this convicted murderer who escaped prison nearly two weeks ago is now armed. Daniello Cavalcante was spotted again late last night, about 20 miles north of the prison. This is video of an armored vehicle and heavily armed officers swarming the scene. He is still on the loose this morning. Residents in the area are being urged to stay inside and lock all doors and windows and vehicles. CNN affiliate WPVI reports that a pair of shoes believed to be Cavalcante's were found in the area. And shortly after that, police received reports of gunfire. In this just in, Owen J. Roberts School District made the decision to, quote, close all schools and offices today as a result of the increased police activity in the area. CNN correspondent Danny Friedman has been tracking everything for every day of this. Danny, what's the latest down there? Phil, Poppy, this was an update that so many feared for so many days. Danilo Cavalcante now armed and still on the loose. And I got to say, this has been a very active morning along Pottstown Pike, the uh, main search perimeter now, just a few miles up the road. Police have closed off this area, but we've seen, as you said, armored cars coming into the area with law enforcement officers dressed in fatigues entering the area. Uh, And all of this really started last night. And I just want to emphasize kind of where we started and how we got to this point and tell you what specifically we know at this time. Yesterday, remember, Phil Poppy was a pretty quiet day in this search. Law enforcement really focusing uh, in this general area of East Nantmeal. It's a small community uh, in Chester County, but importantly, it is the community where Danilo Cavalcante ditched that stolen dairy van over the weekend. And then last night, everything really uh, changed. We saw a number of law enforcement officers really flying down Pottstown Pike. We saw helicopters in the air. And then a few specific things happened. Chester County reported that there was a shooting in East Nantmeal at around 10, 10 p.m. in the area of Coventryville Road and Ridge Road. Then Pennsylvania State Police confirmed to CNN at around 10:24 that there was a confirmed sighting of Cavalcante. Then we learned that a 911 call went out, a reverse 911 call, should say, went out to the South Coventry Township community. Again, that's this community just a little bit up the road from where we are right now, saying they should lock windows, lock doors, because Cavalcante may be in the area. And at that time, the reporting was that he may be armed. Well, then at 1.45 this morning, Pennsylvania State Police confirming that Cavalcante is indeed armed. So this new perimeter, like I said, three and a half miles up this road, uh, we are uh, at a staging area just south of that particular point. And I should say that this 
search area is just about four and a half miles north of where Cavalcante ditched that van that I was talking about earlier over the weekend. So he has, according to police, stayed in this general area of Chester County. We're still working to confirm some more details about that shooting incident that took place last night. But Poppy Phil, this really has been the nightmare scenario for this 13-day manhunt that Cavalcante could get his hands on a weapon. Police confirming he is armed at this time as the search continues. Yeah, nightmare scenario is right. Danny Freeman, keep us posted throughout the morning. Thank you. All right, let's talk about all of this with Philadelphia's former police chief and CNN senior law enforcement analyst Charles Ramsey. Gosh, if I'm a parent waking up this morning to this news and I find out my kid's school is closed because one of the schools around there is closed, I'm thinking, what do I do? Right. The police tell me to lock the doors, lock the vehicles. I don't go to work. I mean, this is like terrorizing this community. Well, it is. I mean, it's something that certainly is upsetting, but it's right now the best thing to do. Keep your doors locked. Keep your windows locked. Keep everyone inside. Uh, This has changed quite a bit now. He is armed. You know, I'm here in Philadelphia, so obviously the local news is all over this as well. And um, what we're hearing here anyway is that he did break into a home last night. The homeowner uh, heard him actually fire shots at him. Whether or not he was hit, I don't know. Uh, But he did take a rifle, a 22 caliber rifle uh, from that home. So he is definitely armed right now. That changes things dramatically. A dangerous individual to begin with, and now he's armed. And so what they're probably most concerned about is him trying to barricade himself inside of a residence or some other facility. Uh, We don't know, again, if he's injured. Uh, Police probably know if there was blood at the scene, but um, all these factors now are coming together. You see SWAT teams there. They're trying to really close in on a a real tight perimeter and, and take this guy down. Yeah, how does, and I think you're getting at this to some degree, but expand a little bit on what this does in terms of changing tactics from law enforcement when you know he is armed, when you know he has a weapon? Well, you know, you have to be careful whenever you're doing these kinds of searches anyway, but now you have to be very, very careful. If he's got a rifle, uh, I mean, you know, if he sees the, uh, the officers out there during the search, he can obviously take a shot at them. Uh, so that just heightens the awareness, heightens the danger uh, that they're facing, but they're going to move ahead anyway. It's all you can do. They'll use dogs. They'll use drones. They'll use other uh, ways in which to try to pinpoint his location. Uh, but in the meantime, you still have to get in there and try to get to the guy because it's a threat to the community. How do you, I mean, so much of what you guys do uh, is about mindset and the mindset of someone. How do you, uh, how do you assess his mindset, you know, 13, 12, 13 days in and how that dictates how you approach Well, I mean, he's desperate. He has nothing to lose. He's facing life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, Now he has a firearm. And so the question now is whether or not will he surrender, which is doubtful, because if he wanted to surrender, he would have done it some time ago. Or does he plan to, you know, kill himself, try to kill others? Uh, We just don't know at this point in time. We just know that he's dangerous. He's probably in a state of panic right now. He's going to be irrational. Um, you have to be very, very careful. We thought he was dangerous before. He is very dangerous yeah. now. All right, Charles Ramsey, thank you very much. So we want to tell you about these evacuations that are underway right now after heavy rains triggered intense 
flash flooding. This is in north central Massachusetts overnight. It's left drivers trapped in their vehicles and entire roads, some areas impassable. Officials there say 11 inches of rain fell in some areas along a reservoir near Lemonster. The city's mayor said a road inundated with floodwaters was essentially gone after a sinkhole formed. A number of streets will remain closed today in the region as teams work to fix that damage. Right now, officials are giving an update. Of course, we will keep you posted as well. Well, in his debut with the New York Jets, 22 years after 9-11, Aaron Rodgers ran out of the MetLife Tunnel carrying the American flag. In the first quarter against the Buffalo Bills, on his first drive, Rodgers was sacked and injured. The four-time MVP hobbled up for a few moments and went back to the ground. He was helped off the field. But even without Rodgers, the Jets were able to secure a major win against a division rival in overtime. Coy Wire joins us now. Coy, you were at last night's game. We were talking uh, last time you were up here about kind of the goosebumps of that oh. moment when he ran out. And then, oh, no. Yeah, the roller coaster of emotions. I mean, I, I hadn't seen a stadium that rocking since, like, Beyonce halftime show. I mean, it was, <laughs> I'm not even kidding you, it was jumping so much energy. Jets fans, a sea of number eight jerseys, Rogers jersey number. The hopes were high, and then just as quickly and as, as big and bold as it, as it was, it just deflated in an instant when it happened. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that place. Even Bills fans, like I'm a former Buffalo Bills player, and even I was concerned, like, no, this can't happen. This is not how the NFL script is supposed to go, right? We, we all wanted to see Aaron Rodgers out there, one of the greatest players to ever play the game, four-time league MVP, and this was supposed to be the moment where he comes and brings the Jets back to their glory, which happened about how many decades years ago, ago was that? when uh, Sorry, Broadway Joe... <laughs> I mean, that's their only Super Bowl title, right? And this is a team and a fan base who really thought this is a, a, a strong possibility Wait, we can make a Super Bowl Why are you speaking in the past tense, Coy Wire? Well, they did still beat those Buffalo Bills, but it's too soon to talk about that, Pop. Yeah, it's <laughs> bugging me. No, they, they had an incredible win, right? I mean, they found I mean, a way. I mean, for Rodgers. Oh, like, for Rodgers. Yeah. Okay, so for Rodgers, so the team did say that the x-rays were negative. Good sign. But they're concerned about, Coach Robert Sala said after the game, concerned about his Achilles. And... I talked to an orthopedic surgeon after the game, and he said it's absolutely a ruptured Achilles. So we will see. MRIs will happen at some point today, and maybe maybe sometime early afternoon we'll hear if that is indeed the case. And if that's the, true, then... I was going to ask, as a former player, I mean, if you're here, you've got a ruptured Achilles. What does that mean for your season? Listen, those, those, that's one of the most difficult injuries to come back from. I've had several teammates who had that. He's 39 years old, Poppy. He is the oldest active player in the NFL he is a bit like Superman, though, so you don't want to even rule that out. Kobe Bryant, as you mentioned earlier, Phil, Kevin Durant came back from retroed Achilles. They were a bit younger than Aaron Rodgers, but we'll see what may hold for the future for Jets fans. All right. Well, it was a very awesome night. Again, my condolences to our team and the Jets fans. Yeah. Anna, Chris, Rob, uh, still with the jerseys next week. Wire, we appreciate you, my friend. Thank Got you. It. Thanks, buddy. So the governor of New Mexico will join us live for her first national televised interview after she has suspended the right to carry guns in public across the city of Albuquerque and the county. That's next. And Donald Trump is asking the judge in his federal election case to recuse herself. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig will break down the legal arguments he's making and if they hold any water. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I'm trying to look at solutions to address the gun violence directly and not be overshadowed by a court order that is not going to be enforceable. I'm telling you that right now. It's going to waste our time. I want to make sure that we have real solutions to battle the gun violence. 
that was the sheriff of New Mexico's most populous county responding last night to the governor's controversial gun violence order, calling it unconstitutional. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham last week declared a public health emergency and announced a 30-day ban on carrying firearms open or concealed in public areas in Albuquerque and its county. She issued the emergency order after the shooting deaths of three children this summer. That includes an 11-year-old boy shot and killed outside of a minor league baseball stadium just last week, as well as mass shootings in the state. The Democratic governor's move is facing pushback from law enforcement officials and gun rights groups. At least two organizations have filed lawsuits arguing that it violates the Second Amendment. And over the weekend, some New Mexicans openly defied this mandate during a protest. We all agree that the the governor has overstepped her authority and is actually in violation of the law. I don't know what her thought process was that she suddenly thought she could trample the Second Amendment. Joining us now for her first national televised interview since issuing this order is the governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham. Governor, thank you for your time this morning. And let's get to exactly that. We just heard from the sheriff. He joins the attorney general and others who say they won't enforce it. It's unconstitutional. Why do it if it can't be enforced? Well, that's their opinion. They have no bold actions. They don't have any plans for reducing gun violence. Every single aspect in terms of preventing gun violence, uh, funds, uh, uh, crime labs, uh, more than $150 million for retention bonuses and recruitment of new police officers. I'm focused on one thing. Uh, we have the third highest gun-related injuries uh, in the country, 90% higher than the mm-hmm. national average. We lost 143 children between 2017 and 2021. It is unacceptable, and it calls for immediate and swift and bold action. And frankly, the evidence bears out over and over again. Fewer guns on the streets makes everyone safer. And I'm focused on everyone's constitutional rights, not just those the NRA says I should be focused on. Yeah, it's not just the NRA. Here's one other concern from the sheriff. Here's what he told my colleague Caitlin Collins last night. In a couple of months or a year down the road, we're the ones stuck in court and we're the ones getting sued over all of these infringement of uh, rights and all these other court battles when I could be focusing so much more on crime. Has any law enforcement officer in Albuquerque or the county actually enforced this yet? Well, we haven't uh, issued any civil penalties, but that doesn't mean that we're not and that we don't have the ability to do that. But that's and a no, right? This is the pushback I get from every single—well, it's a no this minute, but that doesn't mean that we aren't, and it doesn't mean that we don't have additional police presence. And if not this bold action, making sure mm-hmm. that you're safe going to the grocery store, you're safe going to a baseball game, you're safe walking on a hiking trail, there are individuals— including young people, where it's illegal today to have a handgun, openly carrying handguns. My question to law enforcement is, where are you? Where are you? In that young 11-year-old, Froylen Viegas, 17 rounds were fired into that gun. 35,000 rounds are fired at least annually in Albuquerque alone. You are not safe going to work, getting your prescription drugs, or going to a public park. And it wasn't just about a cooling off period. It's about making sure that everyone is safer while we do bolder work to get at both the drug epidemic 
and the gun violence epidemic. Look, and, and it's not for police to tell me what's constitutional or not. They haven't supported one, not one, gun violence effort in the state of New Mexico, so governor, including domestic violence protections, universal background checks. And I know you want to ask me a question, so I'll take a breath. But it's these are NRA talking points about their rights and not about anybody else's. And it's not a ban. It's a temporary pause okay. so that we can make this community safer. I, I hear you, and I'm glad you mentioned Froilan Viegas Viela's name, 11 years old, also in July. You had Amber Arculeta, 13 years old, killed. You had Galilea Samago in August. I want to mention those names because those are kids. They're kids who shouldn't be shot. It's but disgusting. we also have, Governor, the at, Constitution of, the, of New Mexico and the Constitution of the United States, and you're an attorney. Do you think you're on solid constitutional ground here? Well, um, we're going to see. I mean, look, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think I had the right. I have the but right. Where is the right? Where is the in right? In the state of New Mexico. Public health, it's a suspension. It's not a ban. And we'll see what all of these court actions mm -hmm. do. And I did say publicly, Poppy, yeah. look, I got a Supreme Court that says my uh, personal bodily autonomy can be restricted. And yet NRA and other uh, issues, the Second Amendment keeps getting broadened. So the Bruin case in New York, right, yep. that uh, deals with concealed carry uh, right. and uh, cases and, in Texas that say actually, you can Governor, be what a, I'm talking a drug about. You bring up the Bruin case, the but Supreme Court know. last this year. Question, let, let me just ask you this, the, because the Supreme Court last yeah, year sure. totally changed what we're allowed to do, what you're allowed to do. And they said, unless you can base it in the history and tradition, you don't have grounds to do something like this. The New Mexico Constitution, I looked last night, Article 2, Section 6, says this, quote, no law shall abridge the right of citizens to keep and bear arms for security and defense. No municipality or county shall regulate in any way any incident of the right to keep and bear arms. Are you not in violation of both the U.S. Constitution and your state's Constitution? I don't believe that we are. And if that narrow reading of the Constitution, which has been tested in the state, we wouldn't have universal background checks. We wouldn't have a waiting period. We wouldn't have a red flag law. We wouldn't have uh, prohibitions for straw purchases. None of those would have been deemed constitutional. And today, all of them are. They were before These the Supreme Court right ruled right discussions. That. Fair, but they haven't been tested again. Okay. And so for law enforcement, and I understand they're I, not really. Look, if you want the community to be safer, mm -hmm. show me that you can do that. If you're not going to stand up for these kids and really test as hard as you can, mm -hmm. getting fewer guns and dealing with gun violence in a meaningful way, then you're basically saying that you won't be responsible to protect the yeah. citizens of the state. But, so, well, I will, and I will do everything in my power to turn the tide and to make sure every New Mexican, particularly children, are safe. To law-abiding citizens, gun owners in your state, I think they're wondering um, this morning— is this more about making a statement than about enforcing mm -hmm. this? I want to play for people an exchange you had with a journalist at your press conference last week. Here it was. Do you really think that criminals are going to hear this message and not carry a gun in Albuquerque on the streets for 30 days? Uh, no. You said no. Are you going to keep doing this? 30 days, 30 days, take it up to the Supreme Court? Or is this about a statement right now? 
Now, listen, um, I can make any number of statements and already have. In 2007, I was very clear about where I stood in my initial uh, congressional uh, race um, about gun violence. So this is nothing new. But the rates of gun violence in my state, third worst in the nation, are absolutely unacceptable. And while I see that it is getting more challenging to find strategic efforts that keep everyone safe, that doesn't mean I shouldn't do them. And it's not the only thing in the order. It's about public places. It's about making sure we don't have guns at schools. It's about testing for fentanyl in wastewater at schools and other areas where I think that we have a growing problem. To be clear, in your executive order, you're right, only one part of this is is being challenged by yeah. the courts. You try to do a lot That's of other right. things. I'm glad you mentioned that. Just let me ask you one final question about executive uh, power, yeah. right? That's a big thing you're testing here, too. Are you overreaching? Let me give you a hypothetical, right? You're a Democratic governor who's doing this. What if a Republican governor of a state declares a health emergency and unilaterally um, outlaws abortion in that state where the legislature has not done so by statute? Following your logic, would that also be sound? Uh, in, in this situation, honestly, I don't think so, but that is what's happening in this country is that we've got extremists on this question, uh, and on reproductive rights. And the issue about the emergency order, the difference here is I had an 11 year old that was shot and killed with 17 rounds in a road rage. I got a call from a surgeon whose husband was killed in the exact same way in Albuquerque. Violence is growing. Every single investment and strategy, Mm -hmm. including a bold call to action, has failed. And here, this is about protecting everyone's rights. The Republican governor is about restricting some rights. Uh, And uh, I, I... I think we're going to see these challenges yeah. uh, across the country. Well, but I'm going to stand up for the children, and I'm going to stand up for public safety in Albuquerque. We, we will watch as you do, and I was ac- asking about the law itself and the reach that you have under the Constitution of the United States and New Mexico. I'm glad you came. This is a really important discussion. Please come back anytime you'd like to continue the conversation. Governor Grisham, thank you. Thank you, Poppy. Yeah. Well, Donald Trump is now asking the judge in his federal election case to recuse herself. We're going to break down those legal arguments. And look who just weighed in on the legal cases against former President Trump, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. What he said, that's next. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is officially in Russia. This is ahead of a high-stakes meeting he has with Vladimir Putin. Kim's heavily armored train crossed into the country just hours ago. This is a rare trip for Kim and his first foreign visit since the pandemic. The focus is an arms deal. Russia wants to secure more weapons for its war in Ukraine, and North Korea is in need of everything from cash to food to missile technology. Listen to how the Kremlin describes this meeting. Like with any neighbor, we consider ourselves obligated to establish good, mutually beneficial relations. We will continue to strengthen our friendship. Let's talk about all of this with national security analyst and uh, CNN political commentator David Sanger. David, you know this stuff inside and out. And I I think your um, take on it is really interesting beyond what this meeting accomplishes, 
is sort of the, the forming, as you put it, of a new block. What are the big implications of this? Well, Poppy, first of all, that's quite a train. Uh, the the, yeah, the green train. train. Yeah, right. Uh, through, I, I, I did a train trip once up uh, in North Korea many years ago, and it wasn't anywhere near that luxurious, I can tell you. Um, so what we're seeing here is basically a reformation of an Asian bloc that is an alternative in many ways to the American-led order. And that is China and Russia, which, of course, announced a partnership without limits. There clearly are limits uh, to it uh, back during the uh, Olympics, just prior to the invasion of Ukraine, um, North Korea, uh, Iran. And, of course, they're trying to bring in other nations um, as well. It's also a very big move for Kim Jong-un who thought he had something going with President Trump a few years ago in their uh, three meetings. Uh, President Trump promised that that would result in uh, North Korea disarming. In fact, he never got back a single missile or uh, a single nuclear weapon. And the North Korean arsenal has uh, increased. But now suddenly Kim's in the position where someone needs him. And that's Vladimir Putin, who's desperate for arms. The Chinese will not provide them. And uh, this is his moment to get them. And what it means is the pressure is off from Russia and to some degree from China on the north. David, if you look at this as a kind of a developing block, and certainly the momentum has been headed in that direction, um, it, it's not equal parts in terms of power sharing to some degree. Who is the junior partner? Who is the client state? Because I feel like everybody would assume it's North Korea, and yet things seem to have been inverted based on this meeting alone. Yeah, they are inverted in some ways because uh, suddenly the Russians need something from North Korea. When was the last time you can remember, Phil, that anybody needed anything from North Korea other than you know a cessation of threats? So uh, it's a pretty remarkable moment. Now, a couple of big questions. First of all, can the North Koreans provide what the Russians want in the quantities that they need? Um, second, is there anything that the United States can do or other allies to stop them? I mean, we could, I guess, try more sanctions. But at this point, since we've been sanctioning North Korea since the 1950s, we're pretty well out of options. We could try to intercept some of this at sea if, to the degree that it runs by sea. As you can see from that train ride, there are, are land ways to deliver uh, weapons to, uh, to Russia. Uh, but that would probably be highly risky. And of course, South Korea is providing artillery uh, to Ukraine indirectly, but uh, 650,000 rounds, we believe, of artillery uh, that uh, has been useful to Ukraine. And so I'm sure the Russians think this is just fair play. David Sanger, thank you so much. We ran out of time, but everyone should read your, this is an amazing of front page Sanger piece. Of course Sanger has an A1 piece on something it's totally different on the day we're having him on to talk about this. China uses AI to spread prolific. lies about the U.S. It's a great it's piece. We want to talk about it uh, in the days ahead. David Sanger, thanks, buddy. Great. Good to see you. Well, Vladimir Putin says the prosecution of Donald Trump is all political. That's something we've also been hearing from Donald Trump. Now, the former president is asking the federal judge overseeing his 2020 election subversion case to recuse herself. Now, according to a filing yesterday, Trump alleges Judge Tanya Chutkin previously made comments that, quote, unavoidably taint these proceedings regardless of outcome. 
One of the statements citing in that filing reads, the people who exhorted you and encouraged you and rallied you to go and take action and to fight have not been charged. The issue of who has or has not been charged is not before me. I don't have any influence on that. I have my opinions, but they are not relevant. That's what she told a Capitol riot defendant during a sentencing hearing back in 2021. So Trump's lawyers argue statements like those and others mean she should not be able to hear this case against Trump. They add only if this trial is administered by a judge who appears entirely impartial could the public ever accept the outcome as justice. Senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here with us. Uh, I know recusals don't happen often in situations like this. There are other statements that are interesting that she's made. Things like when she said last year, it's a blind loyalty to one person who, by the way, remains free to this day. day talking about, you would think, Trump. What do you think? So this is an extreme long shot, legally speaking. But you can see where Donald Trump's coming from. It's not an outrageous motion when you see various statements that Judge Chutkin has made in the course of handling the prosecutions and sentencings of other January 6 rioters. She has said things that seem to pretty clearly suggest that she believed years ago Donald Trump should have been charged, should have been held accountable. And she was essentially making the point at these sentencings that, yes, you're being prosecuted, rightly so, for storming the Capitol, but more responsible people are not. The problem, however, with Donald Trump's argument legally is that, A, it's really hard to get a judge to recuse himself or herself, and B, you can't base a recusal motion for the most part on something that a judge said during a court proceeding. Basically, because that's a judge's job. They have to take all the evidence in front of them, make decisions, make determinations, sometimes about the relative culpability of other people. And so the Supreme Court has basically said, if you're trying to recuse a judge, you have to do it based on something outside of whatever she said in the scope of an actual case in court. Um, Judge Shekin asked the Justice Department to respond. Yeah. Is that normal in this case? How, how is this supposed to work? Yeah, typically, if there's a recusal motion, you'd want to hear what the other side has to say. I'm Fairly certain DOJ will object to this and say you should stay on the case. You don't have the kind of bias or prejudice that needs to require your recusal. So that's what I expect DOJ to weigh in as. So also, you've got different case here. Trump is asking the judge overseeing the Georgia election subversion case to dismiss the charges. We were texting about this yep. a little earlier because I'm like, Ellie, on what grounds? So, Ellie, right. on what grounds? <laughs> on all of the grounds. Uh, this is what happens in any multi-defendant case. They all want to piggyback off each other. There's nothing wrong with that. But basically, any one defendant wants to make sure if any of the other defendants succeeds on any particular point, you get a part of that benefit as well. So you'll see them all start filing motions saying, I join in everyone else's motions. The specific grounds here that Rudy Giuliani has brought that Donald Trump is joining in is basically attacking the indictment. What they say is there's not a crime here. They, yes, it's labeled RICO, but it's really just a conglomeration of actions that maybe some find offensive, but that are not actually crimes in and of themselves. The problem is ultimately that's a question for a jury. But I don't think that's going to lead to also, a pretrial dismissal. I don't think the RICO statute in Georgia says that they all have to be crimes. They all have to contribute to an overall conspiracy. Right. There has to be a criminal object. But yes, each yeah. act, there's 161 acts laid out in here. Each of them does not have to be a crime unto itself. What Giuliani and now Trump are arguing is even if you take them and add them all together, a bunch of pennies added up don't add up to a dollar. If you, if you take, you know, 50 pennies don't add up to a dollar. But 100 do. 100 do. 161 do. That's at Rutgers education right yeah. there. Ellie Honig, thank <laughs> you. I aced Matt. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Well, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy back in Washington and walking a bit of a tightrope this morning as he faces pressure to avoid a government shutdown, but also to answer to hard-right Republicans who want to impeach President Joe Biden. We're, We're going to... 
be joined live by Republican Congresswoman. Look at her. She's here in studio. Nancy Mays. She joins us ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, the House is back in session today, and Speaker Kevin McCarthy is confronting a twin set of challenges, avoiding a government shutdown at the end of the month and addressing growing calls from his party to impeach President Biden. Now, the date to watch, that would be September 30th. Less than three weeks from now, McCarthy has to cut a deal with Democrats who control the Senate and the White House to avoid that shutdown. But he's also facing new threats to his speakership by some hardliners in his caucus. Joining us now is Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. She's a member of the House Oversight Committee. And it's that committee that I want to start with. Um, there have been, there's been reporting this morning, both from Punchbowl News and our colleagues uh, here at CNN, that Speaker McCarthy is planning to tell the conference later this week that he wants to move forward with an impeachment inquiry um, or plans to. Uh, do you believe that there are the votes to move forward on an impeachment inquiry if he decides to go that route? More than likely, the inquiry, my understanding, gets us or help will assist us in getting Joe Biden's bank records. And there's no doubt, based on the evidence that I've seen, whether it's the STARS reports or evidence from the FBI, whistleblowers, et cetera, there's no way that any of this happens without Joe Biden. And so if that is a tool in the toolbox that we can use to get more evidence for the American people, then I'm going to support it. The problem is, if you do the inquiry, how do you avoid doing an actual impeachment? And, you know, that puts a lot of seats up at risk, particularly for Republicans who won Biden districts. And, you know, that is the the web that we will weave if we move forward on it. Well, I think it's a great question, though, because part of the reason you don't go down this route is inevitably you don't have a choice, right? You're going to end up going towards full. I believe the evidence says that we need to do that. I do agree. So on the evidence, you know, you made this point with my colleague Caitlin Mm -hmm. Collins last night that you've seen these SARS reports. You Mm -hmm. can't publicly disclose them, which I think is part of the problem. But you have not been able to get access to President Biden's bank records. I want to bounce something off you. You're on the House Oversight Committee. Mm -hmm. The House Oversight Democrats put out kind of their own summary of where they think things stand right now, including uh, when it comes to the SARS records, says, quote, none of the bank records uh, James Comer, the chairman, has released show any payments to President Biden. None of the SARS, the suspicious activity reports the committee reviewed, alleges or even suggests any potential misconduct by President Biden, nor do the SARS show any involvement by President Biden in Hunter Biden's financial or business relationships. Yeah, well, I think that there's corroborating evidence, whether it's in emails where Hunter Biden was lamenting he paid half, uh, half his money went to his father. And the the bank records will show that um, where Joe Biden, every time he's been asked by reporters about this, he's lied about it. If you've done nothing wrong, then why lie about it? And so the bank records are very important. There are foreign bank records. There's FBI documents that said that Joe Biden and Hunter Biden were bribed. The bank records will show whether or not that was true or false. And so that's why it's so important. And Regardless, the American people deserve the truth. Did their president sell out their country to communist China or to Russia or Romania or Ukraine? And we saw Joe Biden literally brag on TV, in speeches about bribing, the bribery in Ukraine going on. And so, and getting Shokin fired. And so when you add all of it up together. Let's let's talk about the Shokin thing. I -hmm. I want to talk about some foreign policy stuff, particularly uh, some bipartisan work you're doing on Iran. But in terms of Shokin, in terms of the prosecutor, the timeline on that, as well as the Western community's alliance uh, and backing of that decision, and some of the testimony your committee has received related to Shokin, including from one of Hunter Biden's associates who said they believe Burisma thought they had Shokin kind of under their control, it doesn't line up with the idea that this was some move that was made for Burisma. Well, you the bank records can, can help determine that. I mean, if, if, we, if we prove that bribery did happen, that $10 million was exchanged from Burisma executives, to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, the bank records would prove that out. So I don't know why there's resistance to showing 
the money. Uh, to me, that's confusing. And why would Joe Biden have the, feel the need to lie about it if he was not involved? He lied about China. He lied about being on phone calls. He lied about being involved in his son's businesses or having any knowledge. And yet Hunter Biden was on all these air- airplane flights with his father, going to see his business executives. And Joe Biden doesn't know anything. Well, that's just a lie. So I think that those bank records will prove out who's telling the truth. Is it the whistleblowers or is it Joe Biden? But the whistleblowers never explicitly alleged anything directly connected to President Biden. Well, no, but um, we have more witnesses, more whistleblowers that are going to be coming forward. I want the bookkeeper. I want to bring Shokin. I want to subpoena Hunter Biden. I want to see Joe Biden's bank records to say, to figure out who's telling the truth here, because somebody is lying. And your view is the impeachment inquiry will give you more tools. Yes. And yes. so that's why you support moving forward. Right. On. So my understanding is that we would get access to Joe Biden's bank records, easier access to them to prove it out. So to see who's telling the truth. One of the big questions, and, the, and then we'll get to uh, your bipartisan work on foreign policy, um, is is this in exchange for support from you and others related to a con- continuing resolution? You're a fiscal hawk. You've yeah, never no, been... I, I have never voted for continuing resolution. Right. I've never vo- voted to raise your taxes. I won't be doing it now. I think the impeachment inquiry is totally separate from the out-of-control spending. Like, if you get impeachment inquiry, yet you're willing to add $20 trillion to our de- nation's debt over the next 10 years... I'm a hard pass on that. I mean, the two things are very much separate. And I hope that every Democrat, every Republican, every independent watching this morning will call their member of Congress this week and tell Congress to get it together. Both sides, both Republicans and Democrats, have uh, put us in this place where we have extraordinarily high inflation, where we're going to add $18.8 trillion to the debt in the next 10 years. Every American was lied to over the debt ceiling deal. And I hope that everyone, regardless of political affiliation, will call their member of Congress this week and tell them to stop it, to cut spending so that we can balance the budget over the next 20 years, however long it takes, and be more responsible with your tax dollars. 18 days to to figure that out in some way, shape, or form. I do want to ask you before we let you go, um, you are working on a bipartisan basis Mm -hmm. with Congressman Jared Moskowitz, uh, attempting to kind of press the administration to deny visas for Iranians' 100%. president, uh, probably his top officials as well. Walk me through that. Yes. First of all, I want to commend Congressman Moskowitz for reaching across the aisle with us to work on this foreign policy matter. Last year, the U.S. government banned the world's best tennis player from coming and playing in the U.S. Open because he was not vaccinated. And yet next week, we're going to allow an Iranian delegation into the United States, a delegation and a president who who defend mass murders of political dissidents, both in 88, under the death commissions, and most recently last year in 2022. I can't think of a worse precedent to set. Ban a tennis player for being unvaccinated, let murderous dictators into our country. I I don't know what kind of message the administration is trying to send to the American people, but I know it's the wrong message. And it's bipartisan. It's happened before. There's precedent for it. Uh, It's always Mm -hmm. a little complicated when it comes to the United Nations, uh, but we will keep our eyes and ears posted to see if uh, the administration says anything. Congresswoman, Nancy Mace, South Carolina Republican. Appreciate your time. Thank Thank you, you, Phil. All right, we're getting brand new details about this ongoing manhunt this morning in Pennsylvania. Police now say the escape murderer is armed after reports of a violent confrontation with a homeowner overnight. Police are about to hold a news conference about an hour from now, two hours from now. We'll bring that to you live. Plus, CDC advisors set to meet today on new COVID shot recommendations. What you need to know about protecting yourself from the latest variants, that's ahead. So news this morning, CDC advisors are going to vote on recommendations for the new COVID vaccine shots. They've been updated to target the current current circulating variants. The FDA deemed 
the new vaccine safe yesterday for anyone six months and older. The vaccines could become available across the country this week as respiratory virus season is also picking up. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now with, I think, Sanjay, the question on everyone's mind. Tell us about it and do we need it? So first of all, um, you know, we, we hear from the FDA. We'll see what the CDC says in terms of who the recommended uh, recipients are. Uh, we're, we're pretty certain it's going to be uh, people over the age of 65, people who have weakened immune systems, people who have pre-existing conditions that put them at higher risk. I mean, we've heard this before. If you add up all those people in the country, all those various things, you know, it's at least 70 percent of the country that is probably going to be recommended that they get this shot. But we'll hear from the CDC later. As you point out, um, this is a, it's, it's a new shot. Uh, if, you've, if you've sort of listened closely, you, you'll hear that they're not using the term booster as much. And I think it's the first time we're sort of getting a sense that this is likely to, to become a yearly shot, something that's likely to come out around the same time as a flu shot. So sort of look for that. Flu shots hmm. and COVID shots around the same time. We will see. Part of the reason, you know, they wanted to get this out there is because while the numbers are still low, thankfully, they are going to go up. They always go up uh, as the weather gets cooler and drier. Take a look at hospitalizations around the country now. We've been showing this map to you now for uh, a few weeks, and it's it's getting a little bit more yellow, a few places of red as well. These are hospitalizations. They've gone up about 9% over the last week. Another thing that they're tracing is just how much COVID is out there, and they look in wastewater to sort of figure that out. And if you follow that trend line over the last several months, you see that it's gone up significantly. So that's usually sort of a early warning system, if you will, in terms of how much COVID is out there. So we'll see. But later today, again, the official recommendations, my guess is it's going to be a pretty broad swath of people that are going to be recommended to get this. If you've had COVID recently, if you've had a shot recently within the last four months and either one of those things, you probably can hold off on that, on this new shot, because you have uh, existing immunity. But for others, we'll get those recommendations later today. Okay. Uh, Sanjay, on a, on a separate topic, the irony was not lost on me this morning on my way in as I was preparing for the show, toggling between uh, news apps, emails, social media, and then got to your segment. And I realized season eight of your podcast, uh, which is exploring the human brain, episode one is about the distracted brain, the so-called distracted brain. Uh, a little bit of a deep introspective moment for me in that moment. <laughs> but can you explain that for people? Uh, what is, how distracted are our brains? Well, first of all, can I just say this podcast is, it's, it's so fun. I mean, Aww. I get to like collide my worlds of, of journalism and the brain, which, which I absolutely love. But I, I wanted to take on what I'll call the attentive brain, how to make a more attentive brain, if you will. And it was, I was really struck by this data that we saw from uh, Professor Gloria Mark, who measures attention spans. How have our attention spans changed over the last several years? And it's pretty extraordinary. If you go back, uh, I think, 2012 timeframe or so, uh, it was, it was a, a, about two and a half minutes, sorry, 2003 timeframe, two and a half minutes was our average attention span. 2012, 75 seconds, and now 47 seconds. I mean, just, just think wow. about that. That is how much time we actually will spend paying attention to something nowadays, and the numbers have been gradually going down. So what I really wanted to focus on is what is happening, and I think, more importantly, what can we do about it? Do we, do we know what it does very quickly, Sanjay, to your brain? 
Well, it, it, it's interesting because we are, we are uh, given all sorts of different inputs that are changing how fast we have to toggle back and forth in our brain. But also there's this idea that the, the types of content that we're given is shortening as well. So we used to get longer ads, yeah. we used to get longer shot sequences, that's changing. Bottom line, according to the professor, is that when you actually get to focus on something for a period of time, you not only get, get into that focused attention, there's actually a sense of joy that comes with that, that mm. many of us are missing Love because that. we just don't get that, that sustained attention anymore. See that? Hear that, Phil? Focus. I mean, when I got joy. to Sanjay's part, I was focused. <laughs> you got at least 54 seconds this morning on my there way. You <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Sanjay. Can't wait to Thanks, listen Sanjay. to it. Thanks, Sanjay. appreciate it. You can find out more about the distracted brain, how to turn it into an attentive one. Listen to Sanjay's Chasing Life podcast wherever you get your pod. We're getting brand new details about the ongoing manhunt in Pennsylvania. Police say the escape murderer is armed. Reports of violent confrontation with a homeowner. Police will give an update at 9.30 this morning. We're going to bring you that live. Stay with us. Top of the hour. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on this Tuesday. Let's start with five things to know. For Tuesday, September 12th, police say the escape murderer, still on the run in Pennsylvania, is now armed. And we're now hearing he may have stolen a gun during a confrontation with a homeowner during which shots were fired. And Kim Jong-un has arrived in Russia. We're waiting to see where and when he meets with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss potential arms deal for the war in Ukraine. And new this morning, Putin weighing in on the Trump indictments. He says it shows the U.S. political system is rotten. Congress is back. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has his work cut out for him. He's juggling a potential government shutdown and pressure from the hard right to impeach President Biden. And after all the hype, quarterback Aaron Rodgers' debut with the New York Jets lasted less than five minutes. See you this morning starts right now. Here's where we begin. Really scary new developments in this ongoing manhunt for an escaped murderer in Pennsylvania. Sources tell our affiliate KYW that a man matching Danilo Calvacante's description stole a rifle with a scope during a violent confrontation with a homeowner last night. That homeowner opened fire, but it's not known if the fugitive was hit. That's according to sources. Police rushed to the area that's about 20 miles north of the prison where he escaped. Well, people in the area were warned to lock their doors and stay inside. The local school district decided to close today. We're expecting a police news conference in just over an hour from now. Joining us now is Scott Duffy, a retired FBI special agent who now serves as the co-director of Wilmington University's Criminal Justice Institute. He was involved in an 18-day manhunt for a convicted killer who escaped a Pennsylvania prison back in 1999. I appreciate your time. I'm trying to get a sense right now, given these fast-moving developments, the suspect now being armed with a weapon how does that change the dynamic for law enforcement? So that changes everything. And good morning to both of you, Phil and Poppy. So um, what, what we had before, and it lasted about 11 days, was a dragnet. So he, he escaped prison. He didn't get very far. He got into a wooded area in that Chester County, Route 152, that Longwood Gardens, a very difficult terrain for law enforcement to be able to to uh, to get eyes on him right other than these trail cams that were popping up and and giving law enforcement indication that he was still in the perimeter 
And then after about 11, 12 days, he breaks that perimeter. It's, um, it's not shocking, it's disappointing, but it is part of the fugitive game where, you know, it's, it's a cat and mouse game. You and so the chase is on. You, you led a manhunt for yes. murder in the same state back in 99. Took 18 days, but you guys got him. Is this harder? Are the circumstances now in this case harder? I would say the circumstances are harder. And for the very fact of the recent developments as of last night to early this morning is that he stole a gun. So in 1999, so we're looking at two uh, very similar individuals, right? They both escaped uh, convicts. They both were charged and convicted of murder. And, and so that is the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. So they escaped. Norman escaped and stole a car and made his way back to his home territory, which was Chester County. And he was bouncing between three different states, stealing one car uh, to the next. It, 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 it's not known what his goal was necessarily. There were some talks about him trying to find some treasure or something that might have been buried from their time as the Johnston gang. But this, this guy, Danello, he, we're trying to figure out his game plan. He, he escaped. He obviously um, is trying to figure out where he's going to go. The predictable behavior was uh, predicted in the sense that what did he do when he escaped the perimeter? He went to a territory that he was known with in that Phoenixville in the area that he is now. I'm a little bit surprised that he hasn't kept making that trek wherever, wherever he's going to go. And so I thought it was going to be the dragnet. Then he broke free. And so now law enforcement pulls back and an investigation takes place where they pretty much go to family, friends, associates, known locations, whatever he was doing in the, in the short time he was in the Chester County prison, whoever he was communicating with. Those would be things that law enforcement would be looking at. Right. Now, he, if, if the reports are true that he's obtained a gun, it's, it's an absolute different game. There's a fight. There's flight. He did the flight. And now it looks like he's trying to put up a fight. This, this does change the way things are happening. Scott, before we let you go, you know, the idea of a game plan, do you think he has one? It seemed the movements seem to have been kind of so divergent, not necessarily following any pa former pattern. Do you think he has a game plan here? He has a short-term game plan, and so he succeeded in his 12 days within that uh, perimeter that was always changing. Law enforcement is on top of this, but we are talking about trees and grass and unlocked doors that are unending. And so he has a game plan, and that game plan is to, to stay out. And, and so when you have that short-term game plan and now retrieving a gun, he doesn't look like he's trying to flee the area. Otherwise, he would keep making a north-south, whatever he believed was, was a way to continue to escape law enforcement. But, but now breaking into a house or a shed wherever he got this gun and arming himself, it's, um, it, it appears to me that his game plan is now to fight. And whatever that fight is going to be, law enforcement is going to bring that fight to him. Well, Scott Duffy, as a former FBI special agent, really appreciate your expertise. Thank you. We do want to go to this now. We have new pictures right now.
out of Laymanster, Massachusetts. Heavy rain triggered this intense flash flooding you're seeing in parts of the state overnight. It has left drivers trapped in their vehicles, entire roads impassable in some areas. Officials say 11 inches of rain fell in some parts of that state along a reservoir. Let's go to meteorologist Eric Van Dam, who's been tracking this. Wow. Yeah, you know what? They have approached 30 inches of rain since June 1st, so a very, very wet summer. Uh, that really saturated the ground, and then they get another seven inches of rain from this month and just within the past day, another five. So, you know, that just set the scene for flooding. This is uh, what was really the peak of the rainfall event near Leominster, Massachusetts, in Worcester County. Uh, the storm system responsible for it is exiting the New England coastline. We're in a bit of a break, but look at this. This is yet another cold front that's going to bring more rainfall to the area tomorrow, so the potential for flash flooding does ex uh, exist there. Fitchburg, Massachusetts, just in a one-hour period, approached three inches of rain. The storm total even higher than that, exceeding a half a foot, even nine inches in some locations, including uh, Lemonster. You could see the rainfall totals highest across Providence into Rhode Island, central and northern Massachusetts. The good news is the flash flood emergency that was in place across Worcester County has expired at 8 a.m. local time. Uh, we still have a flood warning in effect, the resulting effects from the ongoing rain that has taken place overnight. But that has come to an end. There's the break. But again, additional rainfall in store with a cold front approaching from the west. There's our flash flood threat for the day tomorrow. And then, Poppy and uh, Phil, we need to focus on what's going to happen to Lee. Will that bring rainfall to Massachusetts, potentially New England? Uh, still a little too early to tell, but we're monitoring it closely. All right, hoping for the best, Eric. Thanks very much. Phil. Well, this just in, a source telling CNN, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy expected to meet with House Republicans this week to make a forceful pitch that opening an impeachment inquiry is the next logical step. Now, Heartline and conservatives have been fighting to open a probe into President Biden, despite resistance from some of the party's moderates. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now. And Lauren, uh, this development, it seems like everything has been headed in this direction. Now it seems like they're here. What happens next? Yeah, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seems to be leaning more and more into this idea of opening an impeachment inquiry. And later this week, he is going to make that forceful pitch to his conference in a private conference meeting where they are going to discuss the updates on their investigations thus far into President Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. But like you noted, the votes likely are not there right now to open an impeachment inquiry. And while you don't have to put this on the floor of the House for a vote to formally launch the inquiry, that is the expectation right now that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wants to have that formal vote in order to show Republican unity. So there's still a lot of work left to do on that front. And that is just one of the fights that are looming right now, Phil, in the House of Representatives. Of course, right now, all eyes are on whether or not the House is going to be able to coalesce around anything to keep the government funded past the September 30th deadline. And that is the other fight that Kevin McCarthy is going to be having with his conference. They're going to have several closed door meetings and they're going to get back to Washington today. They're going to have a vote on the floor at 630. And as leadership aides have been telling me, the hope is that once members come back to Washington, once they start to feel the urgency of that deadline approaching, they're going to be able to come up with some kind of plan to keep the government funded. But whatever they come up with over in the House of Representatives still has to get through the U.S. Senate. And they are unified over in that chamber when it comes to the appropriations process. They have a plan moving forward. So it's going to be very difficult for McCarthy, if he can't get Republican unity, to move anything in his conference without getting 
Republicans in the House and Senate on board. Phil? Yeah, 18 days, no House Republican spending bills through the House floor, and we're in the closed-door meetings phase. Everything's going great. <laughs> Lauren Fox, appreciate the reporting on a very busy week in the House. Thank you. Well, right now, Kim Jong-un on the move inside of Russia. He's on his way to meet with Vladimir Putin. We're learning new details about this high-stakes meeting. Plus, what Putin just said about the legal cases against former President Trump. We are lucky to be joined in studio by Christian Amanpour. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Right now, Kim Jong-un is on the move inside of Russia. It's a mystery, though, where the North Korean dictator's armored train is heading and where he will meet with Vladimir Putin. Overnight, this train was spotted crossing into the Russian, over the Russian border, and there are new indications this morning that Kim and Putin could potentially meet at a cosmodrome where Russia launches space rockets. That is hundreds of miles north of Vladivostok. That is where they were originally expected to meet. Uh, U.S. officials have been sounding the alarm about this meeting. They say Kim Jong-un wants to discuss an arms deal with Russia to supply weapons for the war in Ukraine in exchange for satellite and nuclear submarine technology. Joining us now, CNN Chief International Anchor, Christiane Amonpour. Um, I want to start, we, we have a lot to get to here, uh, 40 years worth to some degree, <laughs> which we'll get to in a minute. But on this point in particular, I'm trying to understand, we're talking about this with David Sanger, the New York Times, this kind of block that is forming. Mm -hmm. um, what's your read on the dynamics of Russia, China, North Korea at this moment? Well, I've been talking to officials, particularly in the region, and particularly American officials, such as the U.S. ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, who's very, you know, front and center to all of this Indo-Pacific um, strategy. His first commentary is, if Vladimir Putin seeks to rebuild the imperialist notion of a Russian empire by reaching out to North Korea and to an extent Iran, that signals weakness by Vladimir Putin and Russia. North Korea is a pariah state. It's been under sanctions for years and years and years. At the very most, it has ammunition to give to Russia or whatever. Um, nobody believes that what it gives to Russia, if it does, will dramatically affect the status quo on the battlefield in Ukraine. It also points out how stretched Russia is, that it would need to reach out in that kind of way. Obviously, North Korea is probably the one coming, you know, tin in hand for whatever it can get from Russia. But what you have, as you just said, is a group of countries, Iran as well, where Russia is trying to get drone technology and the like, that Russia is now having to rely on, mm -hmm. all of which are under sanctions. Any such deals would be a violation of international law. And South Korea, U.S. ally, big power in the region, has called on Russia to respect and to acknowledge and behave responsibly under the international you know, rules of the road. Right. And so while the White House has said, Jake Sullivan, specifically the National Security Advisor, that North Korea will, quote, pay a price if this moves forward in an arms deal with Russia. Right. You tilt your head because I think the question this morning is, does the U.S., does the West really have any power over well, either it, it, of these you countries know, in this? I mean, sanctions, sanctions and more sanctions. They are not there going are to so go many to war. Already. That is true. But the more they isolate them, I think the more they think that, you know, they can keep them at bay. And certainly the strategy right now in that region, we put Russia to a little bit to one side, but is to... Uh, not contain, as President Biden said, but to try to, you know, build a deterrence against China and any, you know, adventures that China might want to, to play. So all of this plays into the bigger, you know, China situation as well. But really, it, it, you know, it just goes to show that Russia is kind of desperate. Yeah. You've done so much reporting on kind of how uh, 
the world is viewing this moment in the United States. I want to play something that President Vladimir Putin said uh, this morning. Take a listen. All that is happening with Trump is the persecution of a political rival for political reasons, and this is done in front of the public of the United States and the whole world. Uh, Russia meddling in U.S. affairs is not new. Um, I was kind of saying the quiet part out loud <laughs> to some degree. What, what's your sense of what he's doing? I now? would say he would say that, wouldn't he? You know, Trump is considered to have been a friend of Vladimir Putin. I mean, he said it himself. He showered very positive praise on Putin, the strong man. He showered very positive praise on Kim Jong-un. If you remember, I went to meet him twice. I covered both of those meetings. Uh, but nothing came of it. And nothing has come of Trump's so-called friendship with Vladimir Putin, just more and more challenge to the United States and to the international world order. Having said that, Vladimir Putin... Iran, North Korea, the lot would probably absolutely prefer, all the dictators and pariahs of the world will prefer to see a non-democrat, with a small d, authoritarian figure back in power in the White House because they think that that's better for them. Mm -hmm. And they're confronted now with a very stiff challenge to propping up democracy around the world and trying to you know, push back authoritarianism under the Biden administration and the massive coalition that he's managed to get through and staying strong over Ukraine. There is a development this morning in this U.S. effort yeah. to get five Americans mm -hmm. released from prison in Iran. This is about a waiver to banks to release yeah. $6 billion of Iranian money to banks in Qatar yeah. with, some right, with some restrictions of how it can be used. Um, it's a development that the right is criticizing, but it's necessary to get them out. Well, first, you, I want to say this. I wanted to ask about your interview, too. With yes. Well, firstly... The right, or whoever you say are criticizing, have gone into these deals before. President Trump himself has released Iranian prisoners in, um, Iranian prisoners in a swap to get Americans mm -hmm. out of Iran. There has been Iranian money given back in the past, Iranian money mm -hmm. in order to get Americans who are wrongly detained back to their right. families. Um, what this one is about, and I've been reporting this for, for a while now, ever since I got that exclusive interview with the longest held uh, American Iranian, Sia Magnamazi, in Avian prison, the most extraordinary ever interview um, that I've ever conducted. It's just never happened before. It was so utterly compelling, so sad that this American had been held for eight and a half half years in an Iranian jail just for being American. Yeah. And so, yes, this is Iranian money, not American taxpayer money, that South Korea, not America, South Korea owes to Iran mm -hmm. for oil that South Korea bought from Iran, that the United States then stopped the transaction because of the sanctions. Now they want to get their, their people back, rightly so. There are five uh, Iranians who've been released from Evian jail, who are now under house arrest in Tehran waiting for this final piece of the deal. So hopefully they will be able to come back soon. And that will involve Qatar yep. sending a plane, getting them out of uh, you know, Iran, taking them to Qatar back to the US. And this is the last apparently you know, stumbling block, the, the idea of getting waivers because Iran is so heavily sanctioned that it can't even get its yep. own money back. Right. We should just know it's really your, your interview with Siamak Namazi was really pushing this forward. And you have kept this issue and these voices at the fore, which is so much of what you have done for this network for 40 years. 40 years! Ah! 40 <laughs> Which years. is extraordinary for you to say that that was one of the most extraordinary interviews well, you've done in 40 Well, you know, years. in Avian Prison, the notorious right. gulag. Well, can you step back a minute, if you don't mind, because I learned about TV journalism watching you in the Balkans. 
right? Like that was my window into these things. Um, I thought that was totally normal. It's not. It was extraordinary. <laughs> but the, the, the 40 years, like, what stands out to you? Well, here's the thing. 40 years ago, I was a desk assistant. So I joined CNN, you know, out of college practically and, and went there. Um, but I, I really knew that this was the kind of reporting I wanted to do. I went with a mission to be a foreign correspondent, you know, go to the world's crises and try to explain them to people, try to make them relevant to the American people and, and the rest of our global audience. And on the one hand, it's a massive adventure. On the other hand, a huge responsibility given CNN's massive and important platform and its reach. But I, I feel that... Um, you know, it's a cliche, but you really do have to shine that light in places where many don't go. Iran has always been a pariah. I'm half Iranian. You know, ever since I started work, uh, I've sort of had to juggle and straddle this position, um, having empathy for those who are victims of, of, that, uh, of that regime, including wrongfully detained Americans. And so when I got the chance, for instance, to, um, to interview Siamak Namazi, you know, I jumped at it. I did not know what the consequence to him would be. That was my biggest fear. What would the consequence be to him? Nobody has ever done that before, yeah. called out. He had phone privileges by virtue of being in there for eight and a half years. He had moved from, uh, you know, harsh, uh, solitary confinement into a more, well, less harsh, but and with the f other fellow Americans. Um, but as you say, the Balkans, that taught me what it means to tell the truth that in the Balkans, when there was a clear aggressor, the Serbian regime of Slobodan Milosevic, a clear victim, the Bosnian state that had just declared independence, wanted to be democratic, pro-Western, it is the first war in Europe since World War II, not Ukraine-Russia, that was it. And there were war crimes, and I learned there to be truthful, not neutral. That's what I wanted to end with, be truthful, yeah. not neutral. It's really important. Your words, Christian, that have changed so much. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, you can't draw false moral equivalents or false factual equivalents when it doesn't exist, because that's not the truth. That's a lie. So I'm really, really, you know, I've learned my lesson the hard way, the difficult way, and, um, and I won't let it go. Well, we, we celebrate you. We adore you. Thank you. And we admire you. Thank you. Starting today, what is considered to be the biggest antitrust deal in trial in decades, United States taking on Google, what you need to know. And a new CNN report on the rising cases of injuries among airport workers. Do you think it's getting less safe? I would say yes, because people keep on doing, one person will do a job of three people. So new this morning, the TSA says this summer was the busiest ever for air travel. There's also a new problem on the rise. The people responsible for loading bags and servicing planes are getting hurt at an alarming rate. Earlier this month, the Federal Aviation Administration issued a safety alert for aviation workers. Pete Montine has been reporting on this and joins us now with more. What's causing it? You know, Poppy, working on the ramp, the tarmac, it's loud, it's hot. And these new numbers show that it's getting more dangerous. Worker injuries shot up with the rebound in air travel. But now workers are getting hurt at a rate higher than before the pandemic. And some of them are paying with their lives. When Courtney Edwards went to work on New Year's Eve, she had no idea she would become part of an alarming statistic. The mother of three was helping marshal a flight to its gate at the Montgomery, Alabama airport when she was pulled off her feet, according to an NTSB report, and into an operating jet engine. Edwards was killed. It's a very tough job and it's dangerous. Employees working on airport tarmacs are now part of a troubling trend. 
injuries among them spiked last year, according to Occupational Safety and Health Administration data, first reported by the Wall Street Journal. My leg went up to this level. This is what's left of an on-the-job injury that Ernest Tanga says could have been much worse. Tanga works at Washington Dulles as a ramp agent for contractor Swissport. In February, he was taking bags by hand from an Avianca flight when he slipped. His left leg stuck between the body of the airplane and a baggage loader. So when I pulled my leg out, I sat on a box for about four to five minutes and it was just my leg, the whole leg was burning. In a comment to CNN, Swissport says the health and safety of employees is the highest priority and it says it fully complies with all applicable labor regulations. The number of on-the-job injuries declined in 2020 when travel during the pandemic cratered. But OSHA figures show as flights picked up, injuries quickly returned to and exceeded pre-pandemic levels. Just last week, Massachusetts State Police say a forklift operator at Boston Logan was pinned by a metal beam and killed while he was servicing a JetBlue flight. It is absolutely essential that as we move forward uh, that we bring these workers out from the shadows. U.S. Senator Ed Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, says his legislation to improve airport service worker pay will lead to less turnover and safer conditions. The higher the morale, the more likely that safety standards will be, uh, in fact, maintained at the highest possible level. Airlines have added employees since the pandemic downturn, but safety experts say there is intense pressure on contractors to quickly service aircraft with limited staffing. I think you need more oversight, you need heftier fines, and you need a recommitment on the part of the air carriers to treat these people fairly. Do you think it's getting less safe? I would say yes, because people keep on doing, one person will do a job of three people. Ernest Tanga is still working for Swissport, but on light duty. He thinks new protections for workers like him will be a heavy lift, but it could save lives. If things were done the proper way, I think people wouldn't be injured. We're finding out more about the conditions that these workers are facing. In Arizona, about a dozen of them just filed a labor complaint. They say they're forced to work on hot planes, often without air conditioning and sometimes without water. This is the FAA just put out a safety bulletin reminding airlines to be extra vigilant after these recent incidents. Poppy. Pete, so glad you're keeping a spotlight on all of that. Thanks very much. Well, this morning, the Justice Department and Google set to face off in a historic trial. It's considered to be the biggest antitrust case in decades, and it could have major implications. The case focuses on Google's widely popular search engine. According to the Justice Department, nearly 90 percent of all searches start with Google. DOJ alleges that the tech giant has stifled competition and harmed consumers by paying billions of dollars to device manufacturers to be the default search engine on smartphones and computers. Google denies doing anything to illegally restrict competition, maintaining that, quote, people don't use Google because they have to, they use it because they want to. Joining us now is CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher. She's also a senior media reporter at Axios. Sarah, I'm fascinated by this case because it's been so long since we've seen something this big, but also because the Biden administration has made this type of thing a focal point of their antitrust agenda, anti-competitive agenda, but this is the biggest test by far they've had. 
Absolutely. And the thing to remember, Phil, is that this isn't the only lawsuit that Google is facing from the DOJ. You'll recall that they sued Google earlier this year for its ad tech dominance. And so these lawsuits will play off of each other. If they go down in one, it's possible that they could go down in another. But you bring up a good point. We have not seen the U.S. government go after a big tech company like this since Microsoft in the late 1990s. And by the way, the ripple of that effect of that was huge. The only reason Google was able to become the behemoth it was today was because the DOJ imposed such strict penalties, some were appealed, but that forced Microsoft to lose a lot of momentum to Google on things like search and browser. And today they're still fighting to catch up. Yeah, I mean, that was 1998, and it was because of the, the court ruled against Microsoft in their anti-competitive practices using monopoly power against Netscape. Remember that? But these things seem a little bit different this time around, Sarah. And I just wonder if you think Google, US v. Google, will go the way US v. Microsoft went. We don't expect Google to be broken up. No antitrust expert thinks that. Likely this will be some sort of settlement with a payment or a remedy that they have to change their practices in some way or another. And the reason is, Poppy, this is not the same type of structure as when the DOJ went after Microsoft in the late 1990s. Microsoft at that point had very little competition. If you take a look at the search ad market, even though Google is very dominant in terms of actual search browser usage, the search ad market has kind of become a little bit more competitive. You think about Apple getting into search advertising. Amazon is a huge search ads mm -hmm. business. Yahoo is trying to get back into it. TikTok, social media firms. And so it is a very different landscape. Yeah. I do expect there to be a lot of lost momentum for Google, but not a breakup. Yeah. And I do want to note that their defense is people use, they've been saying people use Google because they want to, not because they have to. It'll be interesting to see. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Sarah Fisher, uh, we, I want to get to the charter uh, cable agreement. I think there are we need more time to talk about that. That's what I'm going to say right now. So I'm going to say, please come back tomorrow because we're out of time right now. But this deal and its ramifications and repercussions going forward, yeah. we have to dig into this. Um, I appreciate your time, as always. We'll get into that later this week. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Well, Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers carted off the field with an injury just minutes into the game. What it means for the season, legendary sports broadcaster Bob Costas will join us next. You're also looking, those are live pictures right now this morning. The sun is up over Pennsylvania and the search continues for an escaped murderer who's been on the run for 13 days now. Police say he is armed now, possibly with a rifle. We'll get an update from officials in less than an hour. You'll see that live right here on CNN. Stay with us. Sam Martin corrals the snap. It's a short punt. Gibson on the return, near side, I don't see any flags, Gibson inside the 30, hits the Jets, and he's gonna go, Jets win it, touchdown, rookie Xavier Gibson. It was a thrilling finish to the first NFL game. Uh, of the Jets season, New York Jets rookie Xavier Gibson running back a punt for a touchdown in overtime, completing a huge comeback but on a very bittersweet night for the Jets. The Jets fans, a much-anticipated season for this long-struggling franchise. Guys, I didn't write long-struggling. Somebody else did. People don't <laughs> know that our team here They're are all, all Jets huge fans. Jets fans. Most of them. Jimmy, I'm not sure. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, but it was an, at least expected to be an electric start. Aaron Rodgers running onto the field for the first time in a Jets uniform, carrying the American flag, commemorating 9-11. The crowd going absolutely wild. After just four plays, Rodgers went down, was carted up the field after 
suffering an ankle. Looks to be an Achilles injury. The Jets coach, Robert Sala, said he believes that Rodgers did suffer that Achilles injury and that it's, quote, not good. You can see it there. Joining us now, CNN contributor Bob Costas. Uh, I, Bob, I think everybody had a tar- hard time with this, Jets fans or not. I knew the extent to which this had uh, kind of spread when my wife texted me this morning and said, I'm really sad about Aaron Rodgers. She doesn't really care about the Jets or Aaron Rodgers, but explain this moment and kind of what it means. Well, you know, long-suffering really does sum it up. The Jets have only been to the Super Bowl once. They won it in January of 1969. Their quarterback was then one of the most glamorous people in all of sports, Broadway Joe Namath. Joe Namath is 80. That's how long it's been, and in most of the years since, they didn't even come close to the Super Bowl. But they have a good defense. They were disappointed in the number one draft choice of a couple of years ago, Zach Wilson, who had to come in and play after Rodgers was hurt last night. So they go and get Aaron Rodgers, truly one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And that electrified their entire offseason. He's a tremendous presence. They're going to be terrific this year. That's what everybody thinks. And then on the fourth play of the game, he suffers this injury. X-rays were negative, but they're almost certain that an MRI, which will happen uh, later today, probably later this morning, that an MRI will confirm that he has a torn Achilles, which means that he's out for the entire season. Best case scenario, slim chance, an ankle sprain, and then he'd still miss several games. The irony of this, if there is one, and as Joe Buck uh, put it, you had the call that, that he had last night on ESPN. He put it perfectly. He said, this is the definition of a Pyrrhic victory, a victory that comes at an almost unacceptable cost. Yeah. And who is the hero at the end of the game? In contrast to Aaron Rodgers, a marquee name, here's Xavier Gibson, who played college ball at Stephen F. Austin in Texas, wasn't even drafted at all signed as a free agent and it was a big deal on the hbo show hard knocks when they told him that he had made the team he's a cinderella story so the big glamour guy is out and the cinderella story wins the game so at least momentarily there's jubilation in jetland but there's a lot of uh, apprehension about what happens next totally just thinking about all the folks who didn't draft him and what they're thinking this morning bob achilles tara fits that has any and i know I have been informed by those who know a lot more about this than I that some basketball players, Kobe, came back after that. Have any football, professional football players come back after that at full strength? Yeah, I'm sure that there are some. I don't know what the percentages are, injury, and then among those who sustained that injury, how many of them came back uh, to play well. But I think that it's possible a football player is different uh, than a basketball player. There's a lot more up and down for a guy like the late great Kobe Bryant than there would be for Aaron Rodgers. But still, you have to push off to have authority in your throws. So um, there's a question mark hanging over Aaron Rodgers. Bob, I have to ask because there were, uh, the, the formulation of 7,000 different memes of Tom Brady in Jets uniforms last <laughs> night uh, going through social media. We saw him uh, at, uh, back in a Patriots jersey to be honored uh, at the stadium. What are we thinking? Is it possible? I guess nothing is impossible, uh, but Tom has flatly said that that itch to play, which got the better of him a couple of times, is gone away now. And he said a couple of days ago, um, obviously, he looks like he's in shape. For a normal human, he's in shape, but he says that he's not really in game shape. But that's the natural place people would think of, because other, other than Peyton Manning, who's been out a much longer period of time, 
who would match the glamour and the resume of Aaron Rodgers yeah. uh, other than Tom Brady? Did John Berman put you up to that, Phil? No, I, I mean, just it's checking. just... I, yeah. Just checking. Bob Costas. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. So nice to have you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, COVID regulations becoming a big talking point among some Republicans heading into 2024. We've got some really interesting new reporting on that ahead. And we are continuing to monitor this 13-day manhunt in Pennsylvania. Police now say the escape murderer is armed after reports of a violent confrontation with a homeowner. We are awaiting a news conference in the next hour. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Well, at the same time, we've seen an uptick in COVID cases across the United States. Republican presidential hopefuls hoping to capitalize on an isolated COVID guidance as a new target for their campaign. Take a listen. The left-wing lunatics are trying very hard to bring back COVID lockdowns and mandates with all of their sudden fear-mongering about the new variants that are coming. Gee whiz, you know what else is coming? An election. Parents can decide whether they want their children to go to school when there's a possible outbreak or not, but don't sit there and mask them back up. I can tell you here in Florida, uh, we did not and we will not allow the dystopian visions of paranoid hypochondriacs control our health policies, let alone our state. Joining us now, political video reporter for The Washington Post, Joyce Coe, Semaphore Politics reporter Shelby Talcott, and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. And Shelby, I want to start with you on this issue because you got some new reporting on this. It was about a focus group uh, that you had access to. Republicans going down this path. Why? Yeah, it's really interesting because we have seen isolated examples of some of these COVID restrictions coming back, but that's the key word there, isolated. Uh, But I think that they viewed the last... COVID pandemic as ultimately positive for them because so many people were frustrated with the lockdowns. And so this time around, this was a Breaking Points uh, focus group. It was commissioned by the political podcast Breaking Points. And and this time around, they're, they're bringing it back because so many voters are fearful that they're going to fall back into the 2020 COVID pandemic lockdowns. Now, what I found really interesting about this focus group was five out of eight believed that there was something called a pandemic, which is an unfounded claim that COVID lockdowns are connected to, you know, democratic attempts to rig the election. And despite that, Trump still came out on top, which indicates to me that, you know, the Ron DeSantis, uh, his, his major thing has been COVID lockdowns. You know, I, I did X, Y, Z when I was governor. And so you, I, I've proven leadership. That's not really resonating with them. They still think Trump is best to handle an alleged pandemic, which again, there's, there's no evidence that that's going on, but that is a whole Just separate for, conversation. For clarity's sake, uh, the president in 2020, when the lockdowns were instituted, who was that again? <laughs> uh, well, it was Donald Trump. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I don't Just understand it. It's just like the disconnect of it. I, I of don't really get it. It's like you can just say things. No one cares about reality sometimes. Why are you staring at me like that? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just listening. Larry, uh, one thing that we did see in the courts when, when it came to these COVID yeah. restrictions, vaccine yeah. mandates and, and mask restri- restrictions, is they really start to get struck down pretty right. consistently by the courts. Especially the this end. court. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court, but also the, the intermediate Federal courts. Court, yeah. Um, really very low success rate. So it's interesting to hear. I, I honestly didn't even realize that these restrictions were starting to come back. Are we going to see people 
challenging them again. And if so, I, I think they're going to have success. But are they, though? I think this is the big question. Yeah. I think you're getting at this in the reporting. This isn't some widespread effort to do. You see, like, different, a couple school districts here and there. And clarify this for me if I'm wrong. And Joyce, you know as well. But this isn't some widespread effort. I haven't heard anything from Biden administration officials about yeah. some sweeping effort, right? No, it, it is not a widespread effort. There are isolated incidents. And that's what these 2024 Republican candidates are talking about on the trail. They're using these isolated Mm -hmm. incidents and suggesting, however indirectly, that, you know, we will not go back to major lockdowns. And you still are hearing from voters on the trail, like when I'm out in Iowa talking to voters. DeSantis supporters that I've spoken to do use this as a reason why they are supporting him. Um, You know, the way that he handled the COVID pandemic in Florida is something that they approve of and would like to see him in leadership. Can we talk about Joe Manchin? Um, Aaron did a great interview with Joe Manchin last night, and I just want to play part of that and get your take. Here it is. My state of West Virginia, the filing dates don't even start until January of next year. So there's no urgency for me. I've got so much to do in front of me right now to get done and to prevent bad things from happening. And once you become an announced candidate for anything, you become a target. I might be a suspected target now in so many different arenas, but still yet I have the ability to sit down with my Democrat and Republican friends and not be a threat to either one of them. Her question obviously was, you know, are you going to run on the no-label third-party ticket or a third-party ticket? He has been such a thorn in the side of the Biden administration on a number of issues. And this, that interview just left, it, it was so illuminating because it was like, he might do this. What do you think? Um, It's interesting when you look at this from both sides of the issue. So you hear Democrat and Republican senators saying this could be bad for Biden if he runs because, you know, they're both Democrats. It's he would be running against the incumbent technically. Um, But then on the other side, I mean, no Democrat in the Senate has aligned himself more closely with Trump during the Trump administration, um, voting with him on issues Uh, and legislation that Trump championed and really wanted to get across the finish line. And so there's a lot of crossover there with Trump voters and um, what could be Manchin supporters. Now, locally in West Virginia, they're obviously both very popular politicians. But uh, and this is also, you know, one of the things that we're seeing in in the presidential race with DeSantis is like, if you are popular within your state, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be popular nationally. So I think that's a big question, but it could be, you know, it could shake things up uh, in the general. Joyce, can I ask you about Tommy Tuberville? The Alabama Senator Republican has long had a hold on, uh, or has been locking up the Senate by requiring to go through the entire Senate process. I'm not going to go through the procedural can we thing. Please? No, that's sort of, don't have that much time left. Um, it, what's been fascinating is go through August, he comes back, has not budged at all, has made very clear to not just Democrats, but his Republican colleagues, not moving at all. How does this end at this point? I mean, this is why people are frustrated with Washington. One senator can hold up 300 plus nominations. And by the end of the year, it could be double that up to 850 nominations. These are top generals and admirals in the military across every single uh, defense department division, you know, Army, uh, Marines, Air Force. Yeah, each branch and their families. Yes. Um, How does it end? I mean, the the option is either he lifts his hold um, or what the armed services chair has said is that it would take 84 days to get through every single nomination if they were to vote on each individual person, which just does not seem like a 
likely or efficient use of time. And there are no legal pathways to press him. This is about right. I mean, I mean it, the it, rules of the Senate. It's what raw political do? power. Um, in other non-military settings, if there was a hold on this, the president could appoint acting, right? We've seen yeah. acting AGs, acting deputy AGs and DOJ and on down the line. But I, I believe it's different. You all would know best in, with the military. You can't have acting. You know well, it's why, it's the why there are four chiefs, chiefs yeah. that are currently unfilled, the Marine Corps Commandant yeah. and the, uh, the Navy chief as well. And so it's an open question. And it's one that you think even Tommy Tuberville acknowledged he didn't have the answer to because he thought he could just extend in perpetuity, <laughs> um, which is great. But then so Manu told him you can't. Yes. And that's what Manu does. <laughs> As right. always. Thank you, guys. guys, we appreciate it. As always, we are awaiting a press conference in Chester County, Pennsylvania, as this manhunt for an escaped killer enters day 13. Stay with us. CNN News Central starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.